If you want to go further and add some fun and versatility into your hunting program, check out Can-Am's Defender. Pretty soon I'm headed to my buddy Doug's, and we're going to be running around in Doug's Can-Am because it's like, it's fun. You can get around quietly, easily, all over his property. It's just versatile. Oh, I love it. To find your next Can-Am or to shop online and get serious about backcountry travel, Visit canamoffroad.com. Turn something that you kind of dread driving around into something you love. Visit canamoffroad.com. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now. And if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand... One of my main turkey hunting buddies. He loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. You know, as as we get into talking about different food, I feel like there's an important thing to clarify here is like, uh, last night, me and Giannis ate dinner at Josh's restaurant, but we've also hung out a bit and just socially and had some wild game that Josh and friends, you go mostly by Joshua or Joshua? Josh? Yeah, both. Yeah. yeah. That. Josh has gotten from friends or harvested himself. So if, if when we're talking, it sounds like there's confusion ever between what we consumed in the restaurant and what we consumed, like, for instance, in my hotel room last night. Um, bear in mind that, that there's, like, important distinctions there between commercially produced meat that can be sold in a restaurant and sport-harvested meat and fish that you can just get from yourself or be gifted to you from a friend and share with other other friends when there's no financial transaction going on. So just bear that in mind as we talk. I'm not going to go in and clarify all this stuff all the time, but it's an important distinction, and I just want people to be aware of that as we march through some of the, the foods we're going to be talking about. Josh Gaines, Saison Restaurant. Does it annoy you? Does it annoy you when, when if, you, if you look at Saison online, there, there's two like things that people will point out. <laughs> okay. uh, I, Just a Joe I know Blow. Where you're going with this. Okay, like a Joe Blow. <clears throat> if you went and typed in Saison San Francisco, 
he's going to find that you have three Michelin stars, which is like a, a tremendous measure of success as a chef and restaurateur. And there's going to be another descriptor. Does that descriptor annoy you? Uh, that it comes up? Well, you haven't told me what it is yet. <laughs> that it's the... That it's the if you take a national perspective, it's the second most blank. Yeah, yeah. You know, unfortunately, that's that's the. Um, Do you hate it, or is it like well, kind of like a thing? No, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't hate it. I mean, I think that you know, there's a there's a certain reality to. Can like you tell a, people what it is? The second most what? Well, it's it's the second most expensive restaurant in America, apparently, because reporters can't do math. But. <laughs> <clears throat> but, but uh, I, I feel like it. Um. Oh, go go ahead. Speak well, to you know, we we started. Um, put it, we, we put the, the price you know, out front in the beginning, right? Everything was included. And then if you look at, you know, let's say, another three-star Michelin restaurant, you get a base menu price, then there's you know, four or five supplements, and you add all those things up, and it's like double the price of here. Gotcha. So, you know, you got to so just by coming out and saying, here's what it costs right. for a, all inclusive. So it's you like get 14 or well, how many courses does it wind up being? Uh, it, it just depends anywhere from eight to, you know, 16. So you're just laying it when you lay it all out. I was trying to put it all out there. I was trying to say, hey, guys, here's yeah, uh, there's you know, no here's math. Our, there's yeah. no math. This is this, this much. Yeah. You'll be here for a couple hours. It's this much. And then it, then it positions you in that way where you have. All over online, yeah. People like that expression. Yeah. How many three Michelin star restaurants are in the U.S.? I think I think there's thirteen or fourteen, maybe twelve or thirteen. Some twelve to fourteen. Something. Are there like other that. ones in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, there's one. So we were we were the first, along with another place called Benue. Yeah. I think we should explain, if we can, just a real general idea of what Michelin stars are. It'd be important because. Yeah. Do uh, that. It's who's kind of the vague. chef? Who's the chef that killed himself when he lost the Michelin star? Oh, I mean, which one? Oh, right. I think there's a few. <laughs> but I, the guy you're talking about, the famous guy, is named Bernard like Lozwell. Yeah, a book I think he's in France. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. So yeah, explain like the Michelin star <clears throat> thing. So Michelin, I guess, is the you know it's it's also the tire company, but they started publishing a guide. I think it was in the 30s, maybe, uh, and, and uh, it was meant to uh, you know probably meant to sell tires, but. Uh, but it gave people, um, you know, a, a, a guide to, uh, you know, uh, destination-worthy restaurants. And so, you know, it was either one, two, or three. And three is basically, you know, the pinnacle of the cooking world or the restaurant world. And, and, and it really means that it's worth a detour, you know, a full trip to go to, you know, a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. And then in your place, you... Uh you wear a camouflage hat, I noticed last night when I was dining here. So you had, that, that wasn't because you were here, actually. It was just, no, no, I know. But, just what I had on. So you, but that's the interesting thing is that um, you're like pretty open, like you're very open yeah. about the fact you like to hunt. Um, even though you live in a town that's perceived by many people who don't live here, like it's perceived by outside as being like a place that would be a hostile environment. For hunters. Yeah, but yeah. then to be, here's like a person who is sort of at the pinnacle of the, the, the restaurant world, the pinnacle of the cooking world, in this very space, and just being like flat out open about it. Have you ever, have you ever felt blowback? 
at all for just being like this is what I this is what I like to do. This informs my cooking. It's my it's a lifestyle I have. I mean, you get you get blowback on you know Instagram or something, but you don't uh, you know in here you know it's the, our purpose is just for quality, right? The quality of the product. So you know, for me, the whole the whole per- reason for for starting hunting again was uh, good meat. It's you know you you know as a chef you start to chase uh, quality, and uh, so you know I was just looking for you know a better quality, and so. You know, over the years, it led me to hunting because you can't really replace that, uh, uh, you know, that that quality level, you know, provided that you handle it in the right way um, as getting it yourself. So or, or at least seeing the whole process through. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, whenever you, you're, the question, you're at a point, just I mean, to speak to that, like you're. You were explaining last night, you don't you, every fish that comes into your restaurant, you like to come in alive. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, and if we hire, if we could get the elk in alive too, we'd do that. But it might stress them out a little bit and not taste as good. Yeah, but, uh, you and know, you have yeah. staff. You have like yeah. a staff fishermen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have, we have fishermen, and they, these guys bring us basically everything alive. So the whole purpose is that we get all of our stuff alive because, uh, you know, the reality is is like as soon as you you know you know pull a trout out of the river, you know it starts to go downhill. You either cook it right there, and you know you get to experience that kind of perfect. Uh, taste, right? And, you know, there's a small window. There's usually, usually for all things, there's like a window. You get a window in the beginning, and uh, uh, you know that's what maybe 30 minutes after you harvest it, you know, you, whether it's meat or or uh, or fish or whatever it may be, right? It's maybe an hour. Let's say an hour, right? And it's perfect. There's one particular taste, you know, kind of attached to that that period of time. And then, you know, as time goes by, rigor sets in, you know. Yeah, can I ask you a question? I was going to ask about rigor. So yeah. if you actually do, say, you know, eat your, a piece of your elk in that first hour, will you actually be able to eat it and enjoy it before you have any sort of rigor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's, a, you know, there's two, there's, that's what I'm saying. Is there's a basically two particular, you know, sets of time before, before rigor sets in, before, uh, you know, any of those things really happen. There's that, that taste. Everybody's familiar, you know, any hunter's familiar with that taste. And then there's that, uh, I guess, what we, what we call aging, right, where we age our meat to a certain point to where, you know, the enzymes start to break down the meat, and they start to make the meat more delicious or the fish more delicious. And, you know, really everything has its, its sweet spot where it tastes, you know, perfect, right? So, so our job is really to find that timing in the product's uh, lifespan, and then, uh, you know, choose the right point to cook it at. So, you know, for an elk, for a big, big piece of meat, you know, we could hang those primal cuts for, you know, a month, three yeah. months even. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it's really all about just kind of finding that, that, that right, right moment when it tastes its best. I want to get back into, I want to spend a bunch of time on aging because you were telling me some things like aging game that you found just from your own, personal stuff and then your work in your restaurant that, that's that's kind of upended some of the things that i thought were possible the, some of the extremes that i thought were possible on aging and what you get on it i also want to talk about your fish killing method the, what i call what i heard was ekg maybe how do you properly say it uh, I, I don't speak japanese so i wouldn't know i call it ikijime <laughs> yeah I, i'm just listening to the japanese dude say it when i go down to the fish market i got just, you. you know ikijime i think but you uh so you grew up in Florida, but did you, did you grow up, like, in Florida, it's like the fisherman's paradise, right? Did you grow up around fishing? Oh, yeah. I grew up fishing, you know, uh, you know ja- all kind of jacks, barracudas, tarpon, sharks, you know, you name it, alligators. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I, um, 
uh, I got out of there in high school, and then I moved to Boston, and then went to school in New York, and then finally came out here. Like your your family's your whole family moved, or you just left on your own? No, I just left. I, I, I grew up around a bunch of people that grew up in New York, and, and uh, you know they always talked about the big city, big lights, and so I, I uh, you know always had a dream to get out of there and go move to New York. You studied what there? Well, I went to so I, so I went to Boston. I had some family there. Uh, what, planned on actually going to school in Boston, and then um, uh, didn't, and then wound up going to culinary school in New York at a place called French Culinary Institute. Yeah, I know that place. Yeah, I gave yeah, which them is now I think it's called uh, ICC Inter- International Culinary. Yeah, I yeah. gave them a beaver tail one time. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, I was messing around for for a period of time. I was trying to mess around finding out how the mountain men cooked beaver tail. Cause you know, like yeah. You know, you're reading about the mountain artists and they love beaver tail, right? But you get the sense that it's just from oral or, you know, oral stuff that was like eventually transcribed into writing of people describing the mountain men's diet. Mm-hmm. But no one really got into how they were actually cooking it or what they were doing with it. And so I started messing with it and, and put some stuff up online about messing around with beaver tail. And the guy at that, at that school, I gave him one and he had his students prep it out. They did some pretty exciting stuff with beaver tail over there. I don't know if exciting comes to mind when you give like a culinary school, you know, some <laughs> rare ingredient. But, but what, what is the, what's like the makeup of the beaver tail? It scales. It scales over. So when you look at a beaver tail, you're just seeing the scaly surface. Yeah. Uh, that tail will be emaciated in the spring to the point where you'll see, you can see the outline of the bone that runs the length of it. Just like the end of the you know, the end of the spine, right, runs into the tail. Um, but in the fall, it gets so fat, I think it gets like 60% heavier in the fall when it builds up fat. And when you burn off the scales, you just put it next to your fire for a long time, and it'll eventually start to bubble and burn, and you can scrape that skin away. And underneath it is what looks and tastes like gristle and fat on a real fatty-ass grilled steak. Mm-hmm. And you slice that thin, and you'd eat it, and you'd be like, that tastes exactly like gristle. But you have to consider that the people that were eating that, um, they were living on a diet of very lean wild meat. And I think it was just like a, it was a fat source. So it's all fat, basically, from like top fat. to bottom. Through yeah, it's just fat. And you slice it thin, put some salt on it, and it's like surprising because it's surprising that that is what lives inside of a beaver's tail. So what about the meat? Do you eat the beaver meat? Oh, yeah, it's good, Dude, man. You like the meat? Yeah, yeah. love well, it. Well, just put that on top. Like a little, it's like a little Toro yeah. topping or something. You could, yeah. make, you, could re, you could cook the meat down and then put the, the stuff on there and like make its own little fat source on there. All right, I'm going to give, give you a recipe for beaver tail after this. I already got it. You got one I already know head? what you need, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was, that was my run into that place. But I had some other point I was going to make about beaver, eating beaver tails. Yeah, I don't know. Did you know by this point, like when you were going to school, like at what point growing up did you know you had a knack for cooking? And then also, at what point did it be that you started to associate hunting and fishing with your interest in cooking? Well, I don't know if I ever, I thought I had a knack for cooking in the beginning. I, I think that you didn't think uh, you were like a, I, 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 had to pay, I had to pay some bills, you know. Is that right? Honest, yeah. And, uh, and so I got a, you know, restaurant job. Well, actually my first restaurant job was in Florida. I was a uh, dishwasher at a Japanese restaurant. And, um, and I just always had restaurant jobs cause they were easy to get, you know, back then you can, you know, any, any, you know, schmuck can get a restaurant job. So I was just, you know, 
it was just what I had. And when you were back there scrubbing dishes, you weren't like, son of a bitch, man, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Well, I, you know, I, I, so I grew up doing martial arts, and I started when I was about five or so. And, uh, and so the, the organization of actually dishwashing and, and getting, you know, a pile of shit thrown at you, you know, play, a, a bus, you know, bus tubs of, uh, of uh, plates and cups, you know, the, and, 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 having, and having to go through the process of, like, rinsing them, washing them, getting in there, getting out of the dishwasher, getting put away, drying them. Yeah, dude, wax, a wax time, on, great, wax man. off. Man. Right. It was like this uh, movement, you know, this martial arts movement. So I was excited about it. Really? I like my dishwashing job. Yeah. Yeah. So then I was the fastest dishwasher in town, man. Is that right? You were a, a, a coveted dishwasher? Yeah. I know that it worked for me when I was my short little stint in the kitchen when we had new guys washing dishes, and, man, they'd be just crushed and in the weeds. It'd be at the end of the night where not only do they have all the cups and dishes and plates and silverware coming at them, but the whole kitchen's just breaking down. So now there's you know pots with you know stuff stuck on them and cheese melted everywhere and all kinds of pans. And, man, if you just jumped in there a couple nights and gave them like an hour of your time and just busted butt with them, and then all of a sudden it's like your rapport with them was just golden forever. You know, they're just like, all right, man, I like you. I like you forever. Yeah, this dude can handle burned on <laughs> cheese. <laughs> then... Yeah, I don't want to. Bla- I don't want to like belabor your bio, but I do want to understand kind of how you came to be who you are. Well, I, th- I think it was really random. You know, it was really just kind of happenstance, in my opinion. You know, I, 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 I was interested in certain things. You know, uh, cooking. You know, is physical act, and I think you know, growing up doing martial arts, it was you know a relationship to crafts, right? I mean, it, you know, it's a craft, and so. But in fact, I, I went back and forth on cooking and martial arts for a long period of time when I first started, you know, after I went to culinary school. Like you were, I, like you were doing competitive martial arts? Uh, yeah. I, yeah. When I was younger, I did. I did. I, I do Chinese martial arts. And, and, um, and so, um, I, you know, I did some competing when I was younger. But, um, but uh, I always went back and forth and, and because, you know, really practicing took up so much time. Uh, and, uh, and so cooking at that time was, you know, distraction from practicing. And so I went back and forth and, and finally around, uh, 20, you know, 20 or so I, I gave up and, and just, and just, you know, needed to pay my bills and, you know, started cooking full time. And, uh, and, and so, you, and where were you then? I was in Boston. Yeah. I was in Boston. What kind of food were you doing? Uh, just like bistro food, you know, random bistro I worked at. I worked at a couple of restaurants in Boston that are well known. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was, uh, you know, it was like, I used to sneak in the bathroom and like read my like martial arts book, you know, little scrolls and shit in the bathroom. I was like, Oh, I got a break now. It's a 15 minute break. I'm gonna go read my scrolls in the bathroom. So, so I always went back and forth. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't really until I came out to San Francisco where I really, really like, uh, started to, um, that was what, 13 years ago. I really started to, to, uh, you know, focus wholly on cooking. So, so working random, in other, working random, in other, working in other places at the time still. Yeah. So well, yeah. When I came out here, I worked at a place in the South Bay called Shea TJ, little little um, little restaurant that it's been around for maybe like twenty five years. Yeah. And I uh, had a garden in the back, but but it allowed me to really refocus and really you know yeah uh, you know treat it as a career and and um, and uh, you know it was a learning process. I came out here, and there was all these incredible products, you know, coming from the East Coast, where there's there's just not the same, you know, you know, convergence of you know all all these amazing things. There's like a there's a cheese producing region here. There's a wine producing region. You know, you can you can you know go outside and and hunt. I guess you can do that anywhere, but 
Um, but basically, they have everything, everything you would want here as a chef to really produce good food. You felt that? Like, you felt that the, the ingredients available to you and the, the products available to you was just better here than it was in the East? I, I mean, go, you know, you go to Whole Foods. I mean, I don't know about now, right? It's a little different now. But when I came here, yeah, for sure. I mean, you can go to Whole Foods and you can look at, uh, you know, three varieties of radish. Whereas, you know, the, you know, uh, what the hell was the name of that place in the East Coast? I don't know. But you go to the supermarket out there and at that time it was just, just wasn't the same. Yeah. Maybe it's because I was dirt poor when I lived in the East Coast. You know what so. we were talking about yesterday driving around here is um, we kind of, in the last couple of days, we've done kind of a tour where... Went San Jose down to Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz up to here. And it was like where I, you know, where I grew up, and where I've lived most of my life. When you are in an agricultural area, you're usually looking at stuff that's fed to stuff that will become food, right? Like where I grew up, it's like alfalfa and feed corn. When you're driving around California, like be like, oh shit, there's a field of cauliflower. Yeah. Or there's, you know, there's like products, you know, where you're like, you're, you're able to, in this climate, in this area, grow the actual things that you eat, you know, all the artichokes, tree nuts. It just kind of gives you a different relationship to how stuff is after, because most people just look at, are looking more at commodities when they look at agricultural fields rather than looking at like finished table ready items being grown. Yeah. Unless you have a garden. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true out here. You know, it's got everything, but it's still, you know, I mean, there's, you know, all that stuff out here is still, most, the majority of it's still, you know, kind of monoculture and, and um, you know, you know, uh, cities devoted to just artichokes. Yeah, I got you. Right, so it's still, it still has its issues out here, right? So it's really all the, the small, it's, it's, it's all practices, right? Until you really get into the smaller practices, then, it, then you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of issues with, with uh, you know, agriculture in general, right? So when you, when you got the idea to start your own, is this the first restaurant you started? Yeah. yeah. Did you at the same time decide to be that you're going to get a restaurant and get a farm? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you, you need a farm to, to really have the best things. Once I mean, you, like, okay, but most restaurants don't have a goddamn farm. Well, that's true, but, you know, if you're going to make good food, you've got to have a farm. <laughs> if you're gonna, if you're gonna you make just real, took it to yeah. be like, that, that's as simple as that. Like, if you have a restaurant, if I'm going to have a restaurant, need I'm a farm, have, need a fisherman. You know, need to get need to get meat at a certain place. You need to find, uh, you know, uh, you know, dry goods. So, you know, as a chef, you gotta you gotta go through. Uh, you gotta audit your list of of uh, how are you really procure ingredients if you really want to get to to a place where you're actually producing good food in earnest, right? So, explain the farm that goes with saison. Is it called saison farm? Uh, yeah. Sure, we'll call it that. Well, I just but saw it. It's just, I saw it written somewhere. You had a duck hanging up somewhere, and I saw it said like saison. Yeah, farm that's up. just in our internal language. We don't. We just our farm, right? Yeah. It's called the farm. But uh, yeah, it's just you know you gotta you you have to you know you got you got a few choices, right? You can pick up the phone as a chef, and you can call you know your your purveyor, your wholesaler, and say, hey, look, uh, you know, uh, I'll take uh, six heads of lettuce today, right? Um, but you know that the whole process of, of of wholesaling is you know there's there's a middleman there's there's a you know usually maybe another middleman someone who actually sources all this stuff out then there's the actual producer so you're separated and by the time it gets to the restaurant you're five layers away from from getting the actual product yeah. so you know it goes to a whole, it goes to you know a shipping it goes through 
uh, holding in the warehouse, and then maybe you get it maybe three, four, five, six, seven days later, right? So at that point, you know, it doesn't taste and doesn't have any resemblance to really what uh, a great product really is anymore. You know, the aroma's gone. The, that, that original taste when you picked it is gone. And, and most likely the product itself is, is you know, some, from some seed that was, uh, you know, spliced and diced, you know, seven different ways to, to have no resemblance of the, the original taste of that product. So we just wanted to, to, you know, take it back to a time to where everything had flavor, right? I mean, really since, uh, what, World War One or Two or whatever it was, that, uh, you know, everything has been, you know, um, you kind of bastardize our seeds, yeah. our seeds and, you know, all our produce, you know, I mean, you really think about, um, you know, how many people have eaten a, a ripe tomato, you know, from a great seed off the vine when it's, when it's truly like a hundred percent ripe. It's very few. So that was our purpose. We wanted to just, you know, have great products. You know, that's the thing that comes up a lot in, in conversations about food. I feel like over the last two decades or whatever is, uh, that I, I sit on both sides of what I'm going to bring up where people talk about the industrialization of food, okay? And we generally now sort of talk about it as a negative, right? Because we have the luxury in this country, we have the luxury of like eating very fine food. But to contextualize it a little bit, just to show you that, just to demonstrate like my, how I sit on both sides of this, contextualize a little bit. During World War II, we had estimates vary but perhaps millions of people starved to death in europe right we had rations in this country on you know there was like dairy rations meat rations major shortages and coming out of that it wasn't long after that that we got used to this idea that we might be in the very near future entering into another major world conflict with the soviet union and I think at the time, the most pressing issue was how can we create a system where we have the capability of throwing a switch and feeding Europe and fielding this military? And so we just like, it wasn't that we got lost our way. It's just that we had a period where uh, our priorities were completely different. And, we, and then some good things came out of it, like that we would bank soil, right? You'd have like farms that were put out that when dairy prices dropped, rather than having a dairy farmer go out of business, we would subsidize them so that they could stay ready to jump into action should the need occur. So now we look at it, I feel like, now we look at it, we're like, we're, we're getting away from that, we're getting away from the industrialization. I feel like we always gotta keep an open eye toward the fact that it's just because we have the luxury of doing that. But it wasn't like evil people trying to do evil shit. It was just people trying to get ready for a catastrophe. Yeah. which we had just yeah. witnessed happen. Yeah. No, it's true. And, uh, you know, we, we operate within a, a very narrow little hole, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so our, you know, our, 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 in our little hole, you know, our little pond, we, we're, our, our focus is t purely taste, right? Yeah. It's taste, and along with taste comes some other benefits. Yeah, no, like I'm that. not so, saying, I'm so, not in any way saying that you're guilty of what I just claimed, but I think that there's like, there's a way that when, when we lose, I think we lose sight of some of the motivations of how stuff came to be and treat it like it was just bad decision making. Yep. You're like, yeah. it's all just Monsanto just trying to make an extra right. buck. Yeah, but it was like a lot of factors at play. Right. Yeah. No, it's not just the evil uncle, right? That, that, yeah. But, um, but you, yeah, but now just to get back to where we are, yeah, now we do have at this moment in time the luxury to have, like, to pursue 
perfection and absolute ripeness in food rather than just shelf stability. Well, there's also some really cool uh, solutions, too, that you see coming around, right? Especially with, with the age of technology. There's, there's uh, closed-loop agriculture systems that are happening that produce, you know, I, I think it's, you know, 20x the, the volume of, of uh, product in a, in a really small space. So you can put, you know, one of the most interesting ones is, is uh, you know, it's completely closed-loop. So what that means is really you've got, you know, a little pod, a little capsule, and it's an artificial and growing environment. And you can fit a ton of product in there. You can grow a ton of product in a very small space. Um, you produce, you can produce, uh, I, I don't remember what the numbers were, but I think it's roughly 20, 30x uh, the volume of food uh, out of this little small space. You can also control the nutrient drink that goes in. You can control the sun cycle, you know, all of those elements that go into growing food. And since it's closed loop, you're basically recycling, you know, all of that taste and all of the nutrient drink. So, um, and it's all computerized. Uh, and so you can basically, let's say you had a, uh, you know, an artichoke that was uh, perfect in uh, 2001 in, you know, Salinas. It was the best artichoke you ever had in your life. You could go, you can go look up all of the historical data or all the weather data and you can plug in those data points to this closed loop system and you can basically replicate that exactly. Yeah. So there's some cool stuff coming out also. But that's uh, inter- That would have interesting implications for the wine world. Yeah. Well, so the issue with that now, now, but the issue is that you lose a little bit of what's called terroir, right? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. because you can still produce a delicious, sweet plant that's, that's great, that's the way that you pr- maybe like it. But you can't ever repu- replicate really truly the taste of nature right it doesn't just it's not possible gotcha. you can't so so that's the downside to that where uh where in your if we're in if we're checking back in now and on your biography and at this point we kind of got you where you're here you got a restaurant you got a farm um where did like your sort of a where did your reawareness of hunting come in? Because you were like exposed to it in in a way in Florida, and were aware that it was a thing people do. And yeah. you'd like to run yeah. around out in the woods. Yeah, you run around. You know, as a kid, you run around, and there's alligators. You talk about running around, and, run around with spears. Yeah, we, you know, we used to try to hunt wild boars with spears. It was never successful, but you know, we'd wait in the tree and try to throw a spear down. But it was it was more of a you know, just, just being a kid, you yeah, know, like trying to get Tom stuff. Sawyer and around. Yeah, exactly. Man. Yeah, yeah. you get some frogs. You know, we'd get frogs and we'd. Uh, you know, eat some water moccasins and rattlesnakes and stuff, but uh, but it, you know, it came it came around because of products. It's it's really taste, right? You know, at a certain point, you look at and you start to dissect all of our practices, you know, and all of our food practices. Um, and at a certain point, you realize as a chef that that uh, you know, grain-fed beef doesn't taste good anymore, right? You you start to notice, you know, it's a process, but you start to notice the fact that that uh, beef, you know, every, or or meat in general, everything tastes like corn. Or everything tastes like uh, shitty wheat, yeah, you know, or whatever it may taste like. So, so the whole purpose uh, was was taste, really. That's uh, our whole purpose is really taste, right? How do we really, you know, find a product that that is, uh, you know, like it once was, or 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 whatever our reference points are for a particular product, right? Like what is what is the most delicious uh, meat? What is the most delicious lettuce? You know, and then so your experience with wild game kind of started to shape your impressions of what was possible and, and what could be done and what things would taste like variations. 
Well, I'd been I'd been getting, uh, you know, we get a, we get a lot of uh, we get a lot of uh, hunters here that give us meat, you know, give us wild ducks or or deer or whatever, and just kind of donate it to me. Yeah. And um, so I've been eating it for a few years out here. Um, surprisingly, there's a lot of hunters in California, um, or at least a handful. Um, also, oh, fr- uh, friends would pass along stuff you'd check out. Yeah, they just pass along meat. You know, I'd eat, I'd eat deer and duck and and. Um, and I got and, you interested. Well, it just yeah, it just it it re it re-sparked that or, or or reignited that spark, right? And uh, uh, I mean, wild ducks are really delicious, right? Yeah. And wild meats, you know, really good. We treat it the right way. So, so uh, at a certain point, I just wanted to get it myself. You know, I just I just wanted to I wanted to you know have all wild meat. So there's a thing that happens, and maybe you can explain this to me. When you're looking at when you're reading about chefs and reading about great restaurants, you're always seeing that. That anyone can produce a, uh, I shouldn't say anyone, but yeah, let's just say anyone can produce this great dish once, okay? But the, 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 the true sign of expertise, of like mastering your craft, is that you can do it 70 times in a night or whatever number of times in a night and have it be the same. And then you can do that for weeks, right? And just like execute it again and again and again. I don't know if you use that measure of success, but you're familiar with that's a thing people bring up when talking about being a great cook. But with Wild Game, you, you look at me like you've never heard I've this. I've never heard that, to be honest, yeah. I was reading that. I was reading someone never talking about it. that. No, I was reading the other day. Someone saying, I was reading a profile of a chef in the New Yorker. Makes sense. And it was a guy saying like, yeah, um, perfection to me is 300 egg ben- like eggs benedict. Without a mistake, without one returned, without one customer return. Yeah, sure. Like as, as the craft of cooking goes, yeah. 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 So I hear that now and then. And on the other hand, with Wild Game, you're opening yourself up to such a tremendous amount of variability. Because they're not the same. You know, if you, if you identify, like if you have a farm and you identify, man, this, this dude at this farm produces some good ass lamb. Because he's got some breed of lamb that works well on the land where he raises it. He's got a great irrigated pasture with like the right blend of forbs and grasses and his alfalfa is beautiful and he's able to run this thing. And when I get a leg of lamb from him this year, it's great. I get a leg of lamb from him next year, it's great. That shit isn't what wild game is like. Well, because you shoot, an a- you, you shoot an animal, you be like, oh, you know, I don't know, I look, it looked like a good animal. I shot it, but I got over there and it had recently crashed into a porcupine, so its entire belly was full of quills, and every one of those injuries was full of pus. It was emaciated, or I shot it and wasn't the first guy that shot it because its back leg on the side not facing me had been injured by a bullet, and so, you know, it was packed with dirt. And it was a mess. Or I killed some big crazy buck that had been rutting hard for two months and hasn't probably eaten a lick of grass for two months and tasted like shit. Or I shot a deer and it fell into a big sinkhole and I couldn't get it out till a couple days later with a rope and a buddy holding my ankles. Sounds like you had some really shitty hunting experiences. <laughs> so I'm just saying, that isn't like this dude that produces these wonderful lambs time and time again. It's like you can't, there is, like perfection is out there, but perfection isn't, always out there you yeah. know i think like we, we killed like whatever was going on that year in idaho and we killed yanni 
we killed some stomper bucks in Idaho, and I don't know what was going on that year in Idaho, but that was like it was the best mule deer meat ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've eaten a shitload of mule deer, right? And I don't know. It, it defied everything you're supposed to be because it's supposed to be like big giant bucks don't taste good. These are big giant bucks pre-rut that had two inches of tallow on their back and were great. So that's my question. Well, for us, how do you deal with all the lack? How do you deal with all the lack of consistency when you're, as a chef who's dealing with wild game, and not just commercially produced wild game, but on your own, you're dealing with hunted wild game. Yeah, for us, for for us, that's all. I mean, every product is is like that, right? I mean, the whole for us, you know, it's so specialized that you know when we get a radish in one day from the farm, it's not necessarily the same as the next day from the farm, right? So it, you can, you can, you know, uh, you know, take that theory with, with any product that you use could be the rain could be, you know, the amount of sun you get in one day could be, uh, you know, their diet, but every product changes a little bit every day. So the way that we operate is we basically get a product in the door, look at it and then decide what to do from there. Because even if you're getting, you know, that lamb, you know, maybe they forgot to feed it one day, who knows? Maybe the lamb is sick. You don't, you don't know, right? So, so everything changes just a touch. And even if it's just incrementally, it still changes every day. And so our focus is really on kind of capturing that taste. So, you know, if we get a, if we get a buck and it's very um, um, bucky, then, you know, you got to decide what to do with it from there. So do you brine it? to maybe purge some of that flavor out, you know, yeah. maybe you soak in salt water for uh, salted water for a few days just to kind of purge it and have, have a clean flavor. Uh, maybe it's like that, that mule deer you got and you just throw it right on the grill. You don't even age it. Right? Yeah. So it just depends. And, and so, so our whole operating system uh, in the kitchen is based on uh, really kind of assessing what the product is. And then deciding, you know, what methods to go through uh, for preservation. And so you know, that, that, uh, you know, sele- just selecting the right product is is, is a, a huge part of it. But um, you know, you can either for us, we either choose, especially particularly uh, mead and game. You know, you, you either choose either use it right there, or you, there's some sort of continuation in the preservation process that happens. So, whether it's aging or curing or grinding into a sausage or whatever it may be, you know, it's just uh, just like anything else. Can you take this menu and do? the menu that you served last night and do a sort of a speed walkthrough? Uh, yeah, I got one over here. Well, I, just do, want people to get a, I want people to get a sense of, of, what you, of, of what dishes you like to serve. Well, um, let's see. You had a fistful of caviar to start. Uh, white sturgeon caviar. Yeah, it's white sturgeon caviar. Uh, it's farmed, right? It's farmed yeah. caviar. But, we, we've, but that, uh, is a fish that, that is a fish that a fella can fish for. Yeah, yeah. In, the yeah. Col- in the Columbia drainage, they have like, uh, you know, they have sea, they have uh, open seasons. Then within those seasons, they have kill seasons where you're allowed to like harvest sturgeon. We were making our own sturgeon caviar this year with a very abundant sturgeon called shovel nose sturgeon, but it's meticulous. Where do you fish that? In the Yellowstone River. Yellowstone River. Yeah, you're allowed ten a day. Oh wow! Shovel noses, and you get them in the spring. They're about, you know, a big one would be two and a half feet long. So, you, But they have caviar inside. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's like painstaking to, to separate total, the eggs. To separate the eggs? Yeah. We've got to put it through a little sieve. It, 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 it doesn't gotta work? You've got to just mess with it. No, there's nothing to sieve out. So when you open them up, 
when you get a female, you open them up and, and you know some fish have like the skein, right? The sack that holds the eggs. Like the, the, most, the easiest example of, of an egg to clean would be salmon. Mm -hmm. Where you open up that skein and you can just kind of like, the eggs just kind of fall away. Right. On sturgeon, the skein and the eggs are just like almost interwoven. Where each egg needs to be kind of separated from the skein. And it's, it's painstaking. Like you get it where you have a ton of it. And then we just cleaned it for a long time. And then we're like, dude, I can't keep cleaning these eggs. And then we salt watered the eggs and just ate them. You've seen, you've seen the, the commercial process of caviar, right? I have never seen how they do it commercially. So they just take, they take a, I mean, it's the same, right? I, I, maybe it's more on this like wild surgeon shovel nose, but, but on, uh, you know, like a white sturgeon, you take the caviar sack out, you throw it into a sieve, and the sieve is, you know, the, the right size for the beads, but, uh, but they just rub it. They rub it pretty hard. And they rub it, and then that breaks away all the membrane, and only the eggs basically come through. The eggs fall, too. Yeah, and then they basically drop it in a, in a salted water bath, and then a lot of that stuff will, will flow. A lot of the membrane will float. You just lift it off, and then the caviar is left over. Yeah. And they repeat that process until it's clean. The shovel-nosed sturgeon, uh, their egg is a, probably about, this is, this is ballpark in it, but their egg's probably about half the diameter of a white sturgeon. There's another, you know, there's also another sturgeon or another caviar that comes out of the Yellowstone is um, paddlefish mm -hmm. caviar, which people collect, and that's bigger, and that's a high-grade caviar. And then we used to get caviar out of, uh, you know, and there's even a commercial market for, for white, uh, Great Lakes whitefish have a pretty good caviar. And that's the thing that people, you know, it's rod and reel anglers can catch. The reason I bring that up is I'm just like, as you walk through this, I, I want to just establish what are these things, even though you're dealing with a commercially caught version or you're dealing with, uh, you know, something that's in the commercial chain, right, that can be legally purchased and sold in a restaurant, that so much of what you're dealing with would also be identified as a type of wild game because especially in the ocean, pretty much anything you're buying for a restaurant is things that people can go catch on their own, on sport fishing tackle, right? So sturgeon... Uh, though most people don't do it, most fishermen don't do it, um, producing caviar is something that just like anybody could go do from a wide variety of fish. Yeah, right? yep. they got, they did, they got uh, uh, surgeon fishing out here. Yeah. yeah, and there's some kill seasons. Yeah. Wasn't Scott Peterson, when he cut up his wife and dumped her in San Francisco Bay, part of his defense was that he was sturgeon fishing when they asked him why he was out in a boat that day. Did you know that? I have no idea. <laughs> I he did. And me and my fake Uncle Don used to troll stripers in San Francisco Bay. And we would go, so right? he was baiting the sturgeon? Is that what the defense was? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, he was doing a chum line. Um, yeah, me and my fake Uncle Don used to uh, do some trolling for striped bass out here in San Francisco Bay back in 2004. And we would just troll right in front of the jail where, they, where Scott Peterson is housed. The prison? Yeah. Uh, what's that called? It's not Alcatraz. San, uh, San Quentin. San Quentin, yeah. 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 They, got the, they got like watchtowers. You, we would, I'm not shitting you. When we'd be trolling by, you'd wave at dudes in watchtowers. I feel like there's some sort of uh, environmental yeah. issues over there. Maybe some waste or something. Yeah, I, I was describing to be honest that, we would, <laughs> that I would say that for, those, for, for toxic fish, they were delicious. <laughs> you can go further with K&M. I'm telling you, man. I don't care if you're hunting on a farm, hunting on a ranch, hunting out on public, cruising up and down the beach down in Baja, out in the desert in Sonora where we hunt coos deer. Riding a K&M is just funner than riding a vehicle. Everything about it's better. 
and you can check these two models out, the Defender. This is the undefeatable workhorse from Can-Am. Because like you, it never quits in the face of the toughest work. And it's got HVAC, which keeps you protected from the elements, and you can enjoy the perfect temperature when it's freezing cold or real hot. Heavy-duty Rotax engine with a class-leading 69 pound-feet of torque. And check this out. Up to 2,500 pounds towing capacity. The Outlander 500 or 700. This is an all-capable workhorse. Nothing you can't overcome. HD5, HD7 engines that power through any job. Engineered with the strength, features, and build to never let you down. So you're getting reliability and a quality build ready for any job with 125 accessory options to find your next can-am or to shop online visit canamoffroad.com slash hunting hey you know when you take uh some time to clean out uh let's say like clean out your garage and you're like man how was i living like that with that place such a mess well check this out if you've been paying a fortune for wireless and then you switch over to mint mobile and get plans for 15 dollars a month when you purchase a three-month plan you'll be saying how was i ever affording to do that way i did it before it's time to switch, okay, to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and get your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. And you will cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Again, mintmobile.com slash meat eater. It's a $45 upfront payment required, which is the equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash eater. Make sure you use code MEATEATER to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. So uh, on to the next one, Turbot. Yeah, what, Diamond Turbo. So Diamond Turbo is just a, it's just a local, local species of turbo. And uh, a little, it's smaller for the most part. Um, but uh, you can fish it. Yeah, and you brought that fish. To sh- you showed me the fish. One of your guys did. The, the fish was alive on a plate. Mm-hmm. Like alive, alive. And in, it wasn't, how, how many minutes went by? Uh, five, six. And I was presented with, so one minute the fish is there on my plate, alive. I grabbed its jaw, and it was very reflexive. 
And a couple minutes later, I had the liver two ways. Well, a different his liver and a different fish's liver two ways. Right. You had made chitlins. Right. Explain that. So you got so you you basically like you know on, on especially a fish like turbo you've got I mean you can use almost the whole thing right Every, everything's good about it as long as you're you know especially when it's alive a few minutes before but um, the the guts uh, the heart the the livers and 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 essentially the the chitlins or the the intestines the intestinal tract and the stomach are all delicious. You just have to clean it properly. So we boil it in salted water a few times, scrape it out, boil it, scrape it out, boil it. Uh, and then once you chill it down, it's got this little, you know, crunchy texture. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, the, was sh- it was shocking to have that, like yeah, how good it uh, was. It's delicious, right? Yeah. yeah. The, a little Saison sauce on there. We've got, we've got this sauce called Saison sauce. It's, a, it, it's, our, it's our seasoning elixir. And it's like, uh, it's basically a brew uh, made of, Seaweeds, local seaweeds, local little silverfish, uh, all of the excess bones and trim and anything that we get from our fish. And then it's grilled or barbecued, or, and, and then it's mixed together, and it's basically inoculated with a, with a bacteria. And then it's allowed to culture and ferment, and it turns into this uh, kind of elixir that's like this savory, uh, almost cross between white soy and fish sauce. And so we season a lot of things with that. So you'll bathe those fish, you'll bathe the fish intestines in that stuff. Yeah, we just season a little bit with that. Season yeah. it with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, and then the livers, we, uh, the livers are, are, are basically salted uh, or rinsed in salted water like a brine, right? Because you've got to purge the liver. Um, and, uh, and then you, you salt the liver a little bit, and then, and then we um, either poach it in salted water, or we grill it, or we, we uh, you know, the version you had was basically salted for about a week rinsed and then put in uh, uh, a seasoning paste which is like saison seasoning paste kind of like a miso it's basically the same thing as a miso okay um, so you had one version that was poached and one version that was salted and seasoned in our seasoning paste and then the rib slab explain what you do with the fish ribs or well, how the fish ribs become like a little serving tray a grilled little rib yeah yeah talk about that uh, so uh, you know, I, I guess really the reason for that was because, you know, the bones still have meat on it, right? They have, they have flavor, they have taste. So, and, and, and typically all the little tail pieces, anything you might feel might be tough. Uh, you know, the connective tissue, the, um, you know, the skirts, the little, you know, little skirt around the outside of the yeah. fin, right? Basically the shit that 99.9% of fishermen throw in the garbage. Yeah, it's, and, you know, that stuff's full of flavor. Like a lot, a lot of those little, little sweet bits are... You know, that, that's the sweet meat to me because it's full of flavor. It's the stuff that gets a lot of use. Um, and uh, that's all gets chopped up and then basically mixed into uh, this chopped seasoned mixture and then, and then put back on the bone and then brushed with a sauce and then grilled. And so it's like a little riblet. Do you know that in, and I see I'm sitting right next to one of the Scofier's books. That's how Scofier would handle carp. You know, in a lot of other countries, carp are like a very popular food fish and in fact they were introduced into the great lakes when, when the great lakes fisheries were declining at like catastrophic rates um a fish culturalist had the idea that they would put common carp into the great lakes to make up for the loss of food fish from environmental destruction in the great lakes but it is obviously never caught on with americans like americans don't like to eat generally speaking americans don't like to eat carp but uh, a Scofier's carp recipes would basically be that 
you poach the fish, whatever you're going to do to it, to be able to strip all meat off the bone. Then he would mix that with all kinds of good shit to eat, right? Like you said, your little, your little chopped up combination you put on there. But he would mix it with butter, cream, truffles, and then lay the carp's tail and head down where they belong and reform the fish's body out of this concoction that he would make and then put new scales back on it and serve that as carp. And once you go through all that, that carp becomes pretty damn good. Yeah. But it doesn't have a whole lot to do with carp anymore. Yeah. He just transforms. Yeah, you lose the taste. Yeah. yeah it's right. like, it tastes like a, a, a... Truffles. Yeah, exactly. A creamy, a, a creamy truffly yeah. kind of mousse. Yeah. Well, back then, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of um, masking, right? Because you got... That's a good you know, way of putting it. Handling was a little different back then, right? And now we've got... Uh, we have so much information that we can... We can uh, you know, uh, we, we've learned from other, other, you know, cultures that like, like uh, Japan is a great example of handling, right? Where everything's just handled so well that the taste winds up being clean and kind of pure, right? Like it requires, so. yeah, it, it's like, I guess that'd be a way of putting it is the way you're handling stuff that's so fresh is you're just trying, you're like showcasing what the thing is. You're not using it to make some other thing out of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're not doing like a radical transformation, well, it's good. It's good enough to where you, you don't need to, right? There's no, there's no need to, you know, stuff it full of truffles and cream because it already tastes delicious. You just can't, you know, you can't screw it up. So the rib slabs, then you cook the tail. Yeah. You got, well, so so there's, the, you, had, you had the head, you had the tail, you had the rib slabs, and the head and the tail were basically just, just purged and sold in water. Uh, and then we, we poach them, and then we grill them. So we just poach them for a few minutes at a low temperature. I think it's like 60 degrees just to set kind Celsius. of the head. Yeah and, yeah, and so it basically cooks the head, you know, evenly all the way through and, um, and, and loosens up all the, all the good bits, like the little the lips and the, the connective tissue and the, the cartilage or, or whatever, whatever, is in, whatever the makeup of the fish is. But it loosens all that stuff up. Um, and then we grill it, and then you, you just pull it all apart, right? So the whole thing falls apart, basically, and then all of that good stuff on the inside, which is really one of my favorite pieces or, or my favorite bits, is, is you know, easily, easy to get at. So on the, like on, on the fish we were eating last night, we ate the head, the tail, the trim, the guts. What the hell do you guys do with the, with the, fla- the meat? Well, that's what you ate in the little bowl with the flowers. So that's just served raw? Yeah, it's just raw. And then when you kill a fish... I learned this from my friend Helen Cho because I was out fishing with Helen Cho and her boyfriend, John. Um, we were out this one time dicking around on a, on a fishing charter, and the fish they would catch, they would, John would kind of sever the spine and then run a hunk of wire down the interior of the spinal cord to relax the fish. And I was explaining to you last night that in South America, I watched Amerindians do that with big turtles that they would catch. Because like if anyone's ever caught a snap turtle, when you cut the snap turtle's head off, the, the head's very much, we call it, it's not alive in any kind of sense of the word of being cognizant, but it's full of activity. Yeah. The body is clenched up, and the body stays absolutely clenched up, and not like rigor mortis, but just like a nervous system clenched up for hours, eight, up to eight hours before that thing finally relaxes and you can skin it. And they would do that practice, EKG may. I'm sure that's not the word they use down there, 
but they would say do it that, a little differently. They, they would ream out the spine and yeah. just relax the whole animal. And you get the same effect by when they electroshock uh, cattle during the slaughter process. Where they'll hit that thing in the head with a captive bolt gun. And I can't remember if they then, I watched them doing it at a couple different places. They bleed it and then shock it. And that shocking relaxes the animal. But you're getting at something with fish. Like, can you explain the process? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not even just fish. It's also game, too. Like, the way that I try to hunt is pretty specific also. But I'll, I'll talk about fish first. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basically just neural death. You're basically just ruining the nerves so that there's no reaction, continued reaction, right? So you basically, you know, well, let's, say, let's take the turbo, for instance. You, every fish is a little different in the way you kill it, but, but the goal is really the same. You get brain death and neural death, right? Or neural destruction, I guess. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, you, you, we, we, for instance, you know, insert a knife right at the place where the head and uh, the spine meet and also the brain is. And so it's basically just one, one stroke, one kill, right? Yep. And then we make a little decision on the back of the tail, through the spinal column. Oh, you know, that's right. That's where, he, that's where John runs the wires, the tail side. Yeah. yeah, and so you grab the tail. It gives you a little handle, basically. And you grab yeah. the tail, and you stick the wire on the neural cavity, the neural column, basically, that goes you know, all the way through the spine of the fish. And you just run that up and down until it basically destroys the nerves. And then the fish is limp. Just and then limp, it's limp. Good. It like preserves that. Limp. Yeah, and it just preserves, it goes completely limp, and it preserves that texture in the fish. And the taste is very. It also, to me, it also produces. It produces a really a super clean taste, right? You don't. You don't. Uh, um, you know, there, there's something about an animal running away or or uh, struggling that produces a different taste, right? It releases uh, whatever it releases in the system, and that taste to me is different, right? Yeah. And you're going to touch on hunting, and I want to like. I'm going to preface what you're going to say with, and I'm not going to like go after you about it or challenge you about it, but. What what this man is about to say is a, is a controversial notion, but I'll let him I'll let him speak to. You talking about head shooting? Yeah, yeah, headshots. Yeah, yeah. You're a headshot man. Yeah, you, absolutely. Hundred percent of the time. I count among my head shooting uh, associates you and my friend Ron Layton. Mm-hmm. No, I got another head shooter buddy. Isn't Tony a head shooter? I don't know, but he's like a a Marine Corps. Oh, that Tony. Yes, he is. You're right. He is. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. Let, you, you, let like me, to, you like to do neural, what do you call it? Neural, neural death, neural right? Death. It's the same thing. I mean, it's the same principle, really. But you got you to, gotta pre- let me preface that with, like, if you're, if you're not going to put several thousand rounds through, you know, each, each you know, shot in, in, in every way you can possibly practice, then you probably shouldn't try to shoot for a head, right? Yeah. Because um, you're robbing yourself of your margin for error. Right. Right. Well, in, to me, even worse is that you're going to injure it and it's going to run away. Yeah, that's what, so I, that's that, what that, I mean. That's the worst part. Yeah, no, me, I don't yeah. mean that. Yeah, I'm not worried about if it was like if every shot was either instant death or a miss, there's no shot I would ever pass up. Right. Yeah. It's, the trouble is, you know, the trouble is in those ones that, that fall in the gray area between those two extremes. Like when someone's shooting at, a, shooting at an elk with a bow and they're trying to hit it in the heart, and they spine it, and it drops, and they're all excited, you could be like, well, I would temper your excitement with the fact that you were like 18 inches off. And if you had moved that 18 inches off in other directions, you would have had a very different outcome. Yeah. But you happen to be 18 off in exactly the right spot. 
you know. Well, I mean, I guess my opinion is if you can't, if you, if you don't feel 100% confident with the shot, don't take it. I mean, yeah. that's, that's like if you, if you don't feel like you're guaranteeing yourself, you know, the, the, you're gonna, you're gonna, your point of impact is going to be exactly where you think it's going to be, just don't shoot. Yeah, no, I'm with uh, you. I, that's so. what people, like, we, we've been asked many times, like, what's, a, what's, a, um, what's an ethical shot and an unethical shot? And after wringing my hands about that question a long time, I was like, if you're surprised you got it, <laughs> that's an unethical shot. <laughs> A hundred percent. If yeah. you want to be like, holy yeah. shit, I can't believe I got it. Then yeah. it's like, you probably shouldn't have touched the trigger. Yeah. But yeah, so, so w- w- yeah, we'll, so we'll, pro- leave, we'll leave that one there, but explain like what you're after. Yeah. So provided that all, provided all that, then um, you're, you're really after the same thing you're after with the fish. You, you know, you're, you're basically, I'm shooting right behind the head where it meets the spine. And, um, and uh, at that point it's going through and the thing drops instead. Yeah. Or at least I think it's dead. Well, but, if, uh, that, if that happened, it'd be pretty damn dead. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't move afterwards, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, but, uh, do you have any thoughts on bleeding? Because I believe Ron, doesn't he say when he makes a good headshot, he immediately runs up to it and, yeah, because the lung, cause, and bleeds it? Because if you, when you hit something through the lungs, you're like self-bleeding it, right? The blood's all going to expel. There's no need to run up and then cut its throat because the blood's laying in the chest cavity or all over the ground. Well, I have a different opinion about blood and, and game. I think it just Laying depends. Out. Well, there, there's a, so there's an old French method. Hold, 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 it, let me hold you up for one minute because finish what you're saying about like why you would bleed it after you hit it in the head, Giannis. Right, because like you're saying, if you hit it in the lung, or this is Ron's thinking. If we, if, no, it's legit thinking. I mean, oh. livestock. It's how they slaughter livestock. It's how they slaughter cattle. Right. So that your, I guess, so that your meat is not full of blood. Yeah. And the flavor of blood, you run up there and cut its throat and bleed it. Yeah, so like when, when you're slaughtering cattle, they hit it with the, like I mentioned earlier, somehow this came up. Oh, electro, electric, uh, using electricity. You hit it in the head with a captive bolt gun, or in the old days of 22. And then right away, while it's still kicking on the ground, hoist it up in the air by the back foot and cut its juggler to expel the blood. I think that has to do with also like shelf stability, yeah, and flavor issues. But go ahead. I mean, I'm I'm gonna well, I'll I'll, so I'll, I'll, I'll old, like mostly uh, defer to your judgment on on the taste of it. You know, well, you know it's subjective. But there's there's an old so you know about like scoffy. There's an old uh, French method uh, where they suffocate like a bird, like a pigeon. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? you've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. And so the taste winds up being uh, pretty good. You know, it's it, it's different, but it's it's like. Uh, it's bloody. It's spicy, but I like it. It's delicious. And so, uh, I mean, if you really think about it, you know, animals, the meat is full of blood, right? Yeah. So, that's what you're eating anyway. A little more blood's not going to kill you, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I so just... You don't, t- you I don't just, take it as a given that blood has to get out. Uh, no, not at all. I don't think so. I mean, I, you know... Do you guys bleed the your fish? Time, like, when the fish you killed last night, do you bleed the definitely. fish? Definitely. So, fish, that's a different story because fish has this... Uh, very kind of iron, fish blood has this very irony kind of um, metallic taste that you don't want at all. And I think, you know, all blood has that to some degree. But a lot of animal blood, like duck blood, you know, you, there's, you know, think about, you know, old French sauces like, um, you know, duck blood in the sauce or, or um, you know, any, any birds or, uh, um, I mean, a lot of cultures, 
across the world eat a lot of blood, right? They yeah. eat blood. They don't waste the blood. Here, yeah. for some reason, or we you, waste it or all. Or you catch the blood and make blood sausage with it. Or yeah, so kind of I, I like the blood, personally. I think it's good. You just got to, you again, it's practices, right? It's, it's handling and practices. But, but to yeah, me, it tastes yeah, good. Scovier has a lot of things, too, where you uh, use the rabbit blood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah blood like a little civet sauce. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, what were we talking about? Headshots? Yeah, like yeah. what you're striving they, for. A kidjame of you know, wild game kidjame essentially, right? And that's that's what we're striving for. Right, we're striving for that that instant death to where it's basically there's zero suffering involved. And but even before that, one of the things that I've noticed is that you know if you go out there and you scare an animal, and it's running away, yeah, or maybe you injure it, and, which I have before and I always feel horrible about, but um, it's running away and then and then uh, you finally get it. It, it tastes different. Oh, right? absolutely, the thing tastes different. It tastes totally different. So, so for me, it's one of those things where you, you basically sneak up on something. You know, you put in the work, put in enough work to actually harvest it in a way where it has no idea you're there. You know, it's eating some flowers, just like this bear that I just got. You know, it's, it's sitting there eating uh, dandelion flowers, and the next thing it's dead, right? One shot, one kill, instant, it's done. Right? So to me, that's, that's, that's the way that I like to hunt. Yeah. Do you feel like it could not only affect the flavor, um, like the difference between an animal that's, you know, hurried or rushed, scared versus, you know, completely unaware, uh, and as well as the, uh, the texture or sort of like the, uh, the, the, the tenderness. Well, yeah, chewiness. without a doubt. Yeah. yeah, without a doubt. If you, I mean, it's, it's, the same, it's the same principle. Like if you, if that thing goes down right away and it's completely limp the second, you know, that bullet hits that, you know, wherever, uh, it's limp, right? It's already relaxed. There's no, there's zero struggle involved in the process. So the thing is limp. The meat's soft. Another reason I don't like that idea <laughs> is because I have all kinds of animal skulls around my house. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, well, I, would, I wouldn't skull. have that anymore. There, there's your bear right there. You take a look at that skull. Well, how'd you get it put back together again? It never, I never shot the skull. I shot right there behind the skull. Got so it. it's right in the neck piece, right, right where the, the basically, and I, I basically am putting my eye right on the back of that skull, right behind the ear, right? And that's where I'm looking. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. We'll leave it at that. Now, box crab. What the hell? Why is there? Why, why is uh, box crab not a well, thing? Let me, hold on. Let me go back one sec. The the other thing is is uh, the other the other way that I will shoot too. If if I know that I can't, if I if I really want to, you know, get that animal, and I know I can't make a perfect headshot, is the high shoulder, right where the, the spine is. Yeah. Right? High shoulder. The bullet splits apart. It shoots into everywhere, and the same same thing basically. Yeah. yeah, I'm but familiar, it gives you more I'm familiar with that one, and I've yeah. and I've and I've gone for that a couple of times. And right when, uh, right when monolithic bullets started to be very, started to become more popular, um, you know, solid copper bullets, people, Yanni, you should explain this because you follow this shit better than I do. Like the barns. The, yeah, but like like when monolithic bullets became more popular, you started hearing a, way more people talk about high shoulder shots. Yeah, that's because those things punch right through, right? Yeah. So right. Pencil. So a lot of people are getting the, like the pencil effect yeah. when it would just go through the, you know, if they missed the entering rib, you know, they weren't getting that expansion they were used to in a, uh, you know, lead core bullet, jacketed bullet, and so it was getting that pencil effect, and the deer was running a little bit farther than they were used to, and so I think they were moving their um, yeah. shot placement to that high shoulder, which I advocate that all the time because I think it's it's a pretty big. Uh, target still, you know, you don't have to aim that close to the spine. The spine actually sort of dips down behind the shoulder, so it's not like you're aiming 
you know, only three inches below the top of his, uh, or yeah, below the top of his uh, yeah. back there. But there's um, also up in that area is what's called the void. Yeah. Dude, I, listen, it's hard to make predictions about the future. I will die. I will live out my life, hopefully, and get really old, and then I'll die. And on my deathbed, if you said to me, hey, man, what's perfect shot placement? I'm still going <laughs> to, I'll be like, really? That's what you want to talk about right now? And then I'll say, but if, if in fact that is what you want to know as I'm dying, double lung. And I'll tell you why. The, the first time I shot an animal with a monolithic bullet, well, I was hunting in New Zealand, and I shot a stag with a monolithic bullet, and it was pretty far out there, but not ridiculously far out there. And I was like, oh, shit, I missed. Okay? Because he's running around, rutting these hinds, chasing them around. And then a while later, he kind of got where he looked like he wasn't feeling well. But still was like, yeah, you know, I'll keep chasing these hinds, you know, not feeling too well. And then all of a sudden got woozy and tipped over. And it looked like someone had taken, when I butchered it, it looked like someone took a field tip arrow, just an arrow with a practice point on it, and jabbed it through the chest cavity. Yeah. So I've had this with pigs before, wild boars. Because down in, down in, in Southern California, you have to shoot uh, all, all copper, right? You can't shoot anything that's not copper or steel. There's no lead allowed. Yeah. It's condor zone. And so... Uh, well, the whole damn state now, right? Not yet. I think it's next year. Oh, that's when it goes Yeah, in. it's yeah. next year. I know it's coming. Uh, yeah. It's definitely coming, yeah. Um, that's why Washington's real nice right now. But, uh, um, it, it, you know, I've, I've uh, shot pigs where, you know, there was a group of them, and I, and I shot three at three different pigs, and uh, I thought I completely missed. I was like, well, I, I, they ran away. I was like, they just gone. I was like, I don't, fuck, I, I don't usually miss. Yeah, because I don't usually take those shots, and I put in a lot of practice. And uh, and anyway, we uh, we saw one running away. He ran up the hill, little one, and then he dropped dead. And then so I said, like, oh, "Okay, I didn't miss." So then we started looking for the other two pigs. Found all three, but in the end, it was the same thing—a little puncture that went straight through. They were all they were all straight through the lungs, right by the heart. Yeah, and they just keep going. It doesn't it doesn't have that terminal uh, you know damage, right? No, and then I got onto the, after that, I got onto the whole high shoulder scene. But again, I hit it like, you remember that when we were hunting muskox? Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude, he didn't even give a shit that I, it's like, I just feel like it's imperfect. You can speak to it. I don't care. No, but you remember that you said you did pull forward just a little bit because, right? I was worried about, yeah. About hitting another animal. And so... You like you personally, you know, judge and, and put it forward, but I feel like with the lung shot too, you can be off the lungs in the back, and all of a sudden you're, you know, into the liver, which animals go a long way when they've got a bullet through their liver, and you go farther back, and you've just gone, you know, straight through the paunch, and good luck finding that. Well, one, look, at know. the end of the day, if, if you know for sure you're going to make the shot, it's ethical. Yeah. All right, I want to. You got to be I, confident. I, I, I want to keep marching down things. I want to talk about some other stuff. Box crab. What, okay, if you went out and asked Joe Blow, Joe Blow dude, who eats at Red Lobster or whatever, uh, is Red Lobster still a business? I don't know, but I just read something about somebody getting food poisoning there the other day. When I was a kid, I'm telling you what, if you were going out to, that was the pinnacle of a fancy dinner. Like on prom night, dudes just, would just take, like Florida. Dudes <laughs> would take, the, take your high school girlfriend down to Red Lobster and you were like, tear, you were setting the stage, man. And listen, guys out there, if that was, that's your plan or you just did that, uh, took your lady out there a couple weeks ago when it was prom night, uh, 
we're not we're not dogging. I'm not you. dogging that at all. I'm just saying I don't know if there's still I don't it know is. how I think it's still around. Red Lobster still kicking ass or not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think they're still around. Yeah, well, just, just let me uh, let me also help with anybody out there who may get food poisoning from Red Lobster. I got food poisoning one time from uh, some sort of bio disease in the in the oysters here in the Bay Area, and Is I was right? I was like I was really sick, man. I I ate I don't know how many oysters I ate that day, but but uh, they're contaminated with something, and um, and uh, so I was I was at the point where I was like sick for hours, and I was dry heaving. There's no liquids left in my body. Went to the hospital. They gave me this little IV thing and a pill better in like 10 minutes is that right yeah yeah listen yanni the fact it upsets me that you even insinuated that i was dogging out red lobster because if you were to number line out on, <laughs> on a one to ten number line out on the quality like if you took a week and be like okay what quality of foods does this person consume during a week if i a red lobster would be like on the five mark how do you weigh yeah i think i'm dogging a red lobster I just haven't been following. I was just the, clarifying. That I just not. haven't been following whatever the scene is over at Red Lobster right now. But Bach, so what else? Make my damn point. People know that there's good crabs, right? And they like snow crab, Dungeness crab, blue crab, king crab, king crab. And there's a redundancy here, like tanners or snows, right? Tanner. I don't tanner's know. another word. Yeah, yeah can you check that? I think a tan. I think when you hear tanner, it's a yeah, t- t- there's there's a redundancy. I, I'm not thinking clear right now. And there's a redundancy in that list. But your favorite crab is a crab that doesn't fall on the list of super good crabs. That's because nobody knows about it. You think that's the what fishermen it is? don't even really fish it. I when mean, I came in and I looked <laughs> at that tank of crabs, I thought you had a bunch of uh, dungy bodies in there legless dungy bodies because of the way they suck their legs in yeah they box up that's what they got the name yeah. they basically they basically pull in all their extremities and, and it forms like a perfect um shape into the all, around their shell they're not so they don't cost nearly what a they gotta be way cheaper than a dungeness uh no they're they're more expensive because nobody fishes them i mean you got it's it's a boutique fishery basically so i've got a fisherman who have to pay you know uh you know x uh, amount of expenses to just to get you know the stuff we want right so it winds up being a little more expensive so how did you come to like prefer box crab and not be like hell man everybody knows that uh king crab is the best crab in the world or dungeness is the best crab in the world like you just don't see box crab around commercially well, first of all we, we we try to just use everything just from right here okay so, you know, we'll take it all. It's it's West Coast because it, it makes sense for us in terms of taste. So everything we yeah, you use, see you pull from BC down to south of here. Yeah, exactly, down to like Santa Barbara, basically. And so that's all that's all relatively the same environment, right? More or less. I mean, there's obviously there's some variation, but but um, northerly, yeah, northerly Pacific waters. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, you know, we we just get we get random stuff from our guys, whether it's our gatherer or our, you know, which gathers our forger and um, whether it's our fishermen or, or whatever it is, they bring us a bunch of stuff, you know, all the time, random things. And, um, and so we're constantly kind of exploring, you know, what are these, uh, what can we grow? What can we find? Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there, especially in fisheries that aren't fish because everybody's so focused on one kind of commodity, you know, a good that, that everybody's going to, you know, basically pilfer you know the entire salmon population you know until there's no more left because they get a higher price but then there's 20 other species out there that are actually really delicious that are underutilized and and, and completely underutilized yeah like uh another dish and this is the thing i've been harping on for people that live you know in the 
Pacific waters is what I what I feel has got to be like the most underutilized. Not that being underutilized is a bad thing, but the sea cucumber being a thing that's just like like in my mind underutilized. Well, it's you know it's it's like I feel like it's a like a, a challenging thing for people to to get past because it's you know it's it's slimy. It looks nasty to some people, and and uh, but you know. It, it's it's kind of a hidden treasure in my opinion. It's delicious once you treat it the right way. Yeah, right. it's just a. Like, Did you guys like that sea cucumber last night? I loved it. No, yeah. it's great, man. Yeah, it's it delicious. Great. It's not the way we do them. Yeah. I know you don't fry anything. Do you ever fry anything? We grill fry. So our whole, our you know our whole um, kind of ethos is all fire cooking. So, yeah, yeah. So if you noticed, you know every single thing you had was cooked over the fire in some way, some manner. And so all of the methods that we used to use. Uh, for regular cooking, we've now created a way to cook it over the fire in the same way. So when we fry something, we what's called grill fry. And so let's say you have a flour, and we'll coat this flour like a like a floral flour, right? Yeah. And uh, we'll coat it in a batter. Okay, we have a specific batter, and we will uh, let it dry a little bit, and then we have uh, perforated pans that are just like sauté pans. And so we'll 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 then take the dried uh, the the coated dried semi-dried rather or at least the batter is dried flour and then we'll we'll brush the pan with oil and then brush the flour with oil and then throw it on the grill so it's basically sealing that batter around the outside and so you wind up with what we call grill fry do you call that your hearth over there yeah yeah okay so we're we're gonna take a we'll take a picture of this and put it up in the show notes so you can go check it out um you got a hearth, I don't know, what is it, like six feet wide? It's uh, eight feet plus um, six feet, yeah. And Different sections. You got a f- fire going in there. And, w- and what woods, you, I know you said you, you'll burn some almond. Almond, fi- uh, fruit woods of, of different kinds, depending on the season. So if you have, uh, you know, for instance, fig season right now. So we'll take fig wood and we'll grill a fig dish over the fig wood. Yeah. And so we use that kind of uh, layering method for different fruits. Could be apple, could be quince, could be pear, whatever it is. And when I came in here this morning, you got about a rick of wood stacked outside of your front door waiting to come inside. So... They got a fire. They got like a rip, like a campfire burning in your kitchen. Yeah. And as I was eating, I was looking over there and imagining that I'd walk over and it'd be like this giant grill set up with a big ass fire and a grill way over it. But what the guys are doing is there's a campfire burning and they're shoveling out little, like, Piles of ambers, little shovel piles of amber. I feel like you're you're misrepresenting the the campfire because right there's more. It's to not it. a campfire because there's no one camping. <laughs> yeah, but it's not. He's not. How is it different than a fire you'd build if you built a fire anywhere? Tell us. So it's yeah. a fire. No, you're. I like mean, it's yeah, wood it's burning rel- on relatively. Fire. I think so. No, we're we're just burning down a, a bed of ambers, basically. That, that fire is devoted. Yeah. Okay, Yanni's tripping already, up on camp. <laughs> Okay, all right. I'll tell my version. You tell your version. All right. You got a damn fire. Wood burning in a fire that was remarkably similar to how one might think of as a campfire. Right? It's not in a... It's just burning in the corner. Mm-hmm. Right? Am I wrong or am I right? You're right. Yep. And your, your cooks who are working this take what looks like the kind of shovel if you had a fireplace... And you had like a little shovel to shovel out ash out of your fireplace periodically. They have one of those. And they scoop out a pile of embers. That's not even 
a quart of embers mm-hmm. and make a little ember bed bed and have little grates that they have sitting over that ember bed and that's what they're working on yeah or any any utensil so we have perforated pans we've got grates we've got uh skewers a variety of different tools that we use to cook over the embers and that ember bed is not more than two inches deep and probably not that and maybe a square foot yeah, depending on what you're cooking. Depending on what you're doing. So it, there's a lot of, I mean, basically the majority of the cooking is done near the fire and over the ambers. And then you got your racks way the hell above the fire. Right. Where you just got all kinds of shit stacked up there. In so the I'll give you an line. example of like, uh, you know, like, uh, so we, you dehydration, right? You dehydrate a um, whatever. So for us. Well, let's give me an inference. Uh, let's use, uh, there's a dish that's well known that we do that's called brassicas. And so it's a bunch of brassica leaves, things in the brassica family. Could mustards, you know, cabbages, whatever. Yeah, broccoli and, and brassica. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so you take a leaves, and uh, we basically lay it out flat. We maybe brush a little light amount of oil on there, and then lay it out flat uh, on a rack, and then we'll put it over almost imperceptible heat, just a really a scattering of ambers. Where it's probably over four, it's probably over four feet above that. Well, that's that's a different thing. That's, oh, that's, different, that's, okay. that's what we call fire in the sky. So that's okay. a different method. It's like a, a different different type of dehydration where it's where it's slowly getting smoked. But it's a similar it's a similar thing, um, different outcome. Okay. And uh, so this is just you know above a little bed, maybe three inches above. It's on a rack, bunch of leaves, and it just slowly kind of absorbs the flavor of the fire, uh, and it gets dehydrated. So that's one example of uh, and it's like a chip. You can just eat it like potato chips. After. Gotcha. But it also has that like beautiful sweet smoke from the fire. So that's one example of like really low cooking, and then and then you know for meat, for instance, what we'll do is we'll temp, we'll, we'll get a chunk of meat out, right, and we'll we'll temper it near the fire. So it's already slowly starting to accept the heat, right? And it's and it's uh, you know we pull it out of the out of the aging room, let it come to room temperature, put it near the fire, okay, and it's so it's slowly already starting to accept the heat a little bit, right? And it's softening and it's developing more flavor, right? Uh, and then we'll throw it on a bed of ambers, which is, you know, however big the product is. And the height of the bed depends on the heat that we want. And then the distance from the top of the ambers to the bottom of the product is also dependent on how long we want to cook it for, how much, you know, heat we want or how hard we want to sear it or whatever, right? Yeah. So, to, to, okay, talk about those quail. How long do you, so you got a plucked quail. Mm-hmm. How long do you age a plucked quail for? Six days. At 45 degrees in a room with a lot of circulation. A lot of air circulation. So the key is that you gotta have, you got to have air circulation all the way around these meats so that you're, start, you're starting to dry it. But you want the humidity to also be high enough to where it doesn't dry out too much. Yeah. Right? So, so you that's got the, the, the perfect room. Perfect room. And it's 45 or so degrees. Yeah, and six days. And that coil sits there plucked, just gutted and plucked mm-hmm. for six days. Yeah. And then you grilled the quail. And I've grilled, like, a mess of quail. And I was telling you that when I grill a quail, I grill that quail for not 10 minutes. You grill your quail for two hours. Yeah, really low heat. In and out of the heat. Right, in and out. So you're basically, that's, you know, it's an in and out method of of roasting meat to where you're basically exposing the meat to, uh, depending on how much fat content is meat, um, let's say for this quail, for instance, you know, medium heat, 
for just a very brief period of time. And you take it off the heat and you let it rest out. So residual you know, heat really has the opportunity to spread throughout the entire piece of meat. And then once it comes down to basically tepid or room temperature, where there's no more cooking happen, then you repeat that process over and over again. And you wind up with, I have never, this is, this is the most surprising thing that, that you cook, is that you wind up with, it's like the texture, like you can tear the bird apart, okay? Yeah. And it breaks, apart, like, it breaks apart like how a bird should break apart that's cooked. But the texture is, you achieve a texture that's more like raw quail. But not it, flabby though. No, not. Yeah. But it still has a translucence to it. Right. It doesn't turn into like it doesn't turn into your classic like white dry, stringy dry. dry. Yeah. It, yeah, it's still it's translucent down to the bone and definitely not raw but has like almost like a cured quality to it. Yeah. Well, here's what we're doing basically. You're basically you're 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 not only allowing it to age so those those oils start to uh first of all, some of the moisture comes out of the bird, right? And then when you're going back and forth on the heat like that, you're getting all that moisture to move around a little bit. But you're not putting on so high of a heat that you're forcing it out. Yeah. Right? So that stuff is just moving around in there gently. And eventually it just rests out and rests over to where it's, that it's cooked, but it's not overcooked. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah I forgot. We were going to come back to you. You were going to offer the more accurate version of the damn fire. I'm curious about this, actually. Well, when I saw the fire that, well, I saw two things that I was going to ask about, actually. One, the campfire that Steve was referring to. Was, <laughs> I, told, I went, I doubled around and said, it's not a campfire, it's a fire. The fire that he's referring to that was in the right back corner, right? That was, mm-hmm. I just felt like there was an intense management of that fire. Oh. That, and you're saying right. campers don't manage their fire. Sure. We just, I just imagine a fire is just like this like pile of wood that's on fire and there may or may not be a bunch of embers or whatever. But this was like two or three pieces of wood yeah. that were being very carefully managed to extract those embers. Yeah, well, here's the difference. But yeah, you're right. And um, yeah, that's something I don't I even notice that really. I don't even think about that consciously. But you basically, you know, you're camping, you want the flame. You're out there, you want the flame. You want yeah. the heat from the flame. For us, we want the ambers. So we're, we're basically positioning the way to where it's all piled on top of each other so that you can stick a shovel in there and harvest the ambers when you need it. And you're pulling out, uh, you're pulling out, are you, are you guys crushing the embers a little bit? No, but that's why. Because you're pulling out like centimeter, like square yeah. centimeter embers. Yeah, so that's why we chose almond wood because it burns down almost perfectly. But a lot of wood does too if you just, if you just manage the fire like, you're, like Yanni's yeah. talking about. So if you, you have, you know, we've got that little fire of, you know, under the amber pile, let's say, imagine is, I don't know, four to six pieces of wood all burnt down. And then you've got another maybe two or three on top to just regulate that bed of amber so it keeps it glowing hot the whole time. Yeah, so, so you've got some flame going on. Yeah. So you're not you're not like you're not grading out the embers like how the embers all look so perfect. That's just the quality of the, how the fire is being managed, managed and yeah. what kind of wood you're burning. Yeah, yeah. I mean you can. Yeah, I mean pretty much any wood you can accomplish the same thing with, but it's really the management of the 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 pile of uh, flame flaming logs on top of the bed of the embers to keep it hot. You can go further with Can-Am. I'm telling you, man. I don't care if you're hunting on a farm, hunting on a ranch, hunting out on public cruising up and down the beach down in Baja, out in the desert in Sonora where we hunt coos deer. Riding a Can-Am is just funner than riding a vehicle. Everything about it's better. And you can check these two models out, the Defender. 
This is the undefeatable workhorse from Can-Am. Because like you, it never quits in the face of the toughest work. And it's got HVAC, which keeps you protected from the elements, and you enjoy the perfect temperature when it's freezing cold or real hot. Heavy-duty Rotax engine with a class-leading 69 pound-feet of torque. And check this out. Up to 2,500 pounds towing capacity. The Outlander 500 or 700. This is an all-capable workhorse. Nothing you can't overcome. HD5, HD7 engines that power through any job. Engineered with the strength, features, and build to never let you down. So you're getting reliability and a quality build ready for any job with 125 accessory options to find your next can-am or to shop online visit canamoffroad.com slash hunting now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet and you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like Black Buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. And I'm guessing there's also some sort, it looked like there was just like the perfect draw, like the perfect air moving across that uh, fire. Yeah. Right? Like it was just like, yeah. it seemed like you could put your hand three feet above where that fire was and you would burn your hand just because of the way that air is moving across it, providing oxygen, you know, to, so it's burning super hot. Yeah. This is the design of the fireplace. Right. So it's got that, you know, it's got that suction. And basically like the way that this, this it has a little lip over the, like the hood has a lip over the fireplace that basically uh, draws the air in the fireplace up, around, and then out the flue. 
so it's just good fireplace design. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's really surprising to me, like how much you guys are cooking over fire. Everything, even the dessert. Yeah, it tastes better, man. Did you have to dick around a lot to get the to get your hearth or fireplace right? Yeah, with circulation. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I, I had a really talented uh, designer who designed the, the draw of the fireplace. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, abalone. So those small, because hey, you can die for abalone in California. You can die for abalone in Alaska. There's, like, regulations on it. I know that, like, for instance, um, at our place in Alaska, because I'm not a resident of Alaska, I'm not able to dive for abalone. My brother is. He's a resident of Alaska. He's allowed a couple abalone a day there's much smaller than down here they got a size limit on them so you serve some small abalone those, those must be out of a aquaculture facility yeah exactly i got yeah. you yeah and then you had some giant abalone shells and those are probably like wild right wild shells those those are the ones i ate i'm just using it as a plate now yeah do yeah. you dive for them no you, you no, never no. dive for them no no, no. yeah no, ever since, ever since I heard a story about uh, my buddy, uh, well, this guy that I know, not my buddy, but a um, guy that I know that uh, dives for uh, abalone around here. He's like a sea forager. And uh, he was telling me a story about how they went up, uh, I think it was around Eureka or Fort Bragg or something like that. A lot of abalone up there. And uh, him and his friend were, they got in the water and, uh, and uh, there, was, there was a bunch of seals in the water, and, uh, which is a good sign there's no shark, right? basically yeah and, or, uh, or it's a good sign that there might be one soon well so <laughs> uh so they're diving and he comes up and i guess the boat is uh, off in the distance 100 yards maybe and uh then he realizes there's zero seals in the water right all seals are on the rocks and so you know obviously he's freaking out a little bit in his head and uh swims to the boat uh takes his gear off takes his flippers off throws in the boat you know uh get, goes to push up into the boat sits down turns around and there's a great white right below him with his mouth open, maybe a few feet. Yeah. Just takes a, takes a pass by and goes, well, that's, that's terrifying. Can't yeah, do it, man. I feel that they, surfers get a lot of mileage out of their uh, dealings with white sharks, but there's a lot more surfers than there are abalone divers, and I think that the abalone divers are more in the mix. Yeah. Have you, have you read Cannery Row by John Steinbeck? No. Um, we talked about it a couple times yesterday because it you know, takes place in Monterey bay and um they do a lot of even back then so steinbeck was writing you know in the during the great depression right writing about that era and they in that book those boys are always illegally harvesting abalones back then it's been like a tightly regulated industry for a long time we also talked about cannery row because in the book um, one of them works at a bar and when he whenever he whenever a client leaves he just takes whatever was left in their glass and dumps it into a bucket, and that's how him and that's what him and his friends all drink. That's their alcohol source. The Wait, what, I, I missed that. What was it? What do they drink? So what, the guy that works in the bar, anytime a client leaves anything left in his drink, in his glass, beer, wine, liquor, whatever it is, it just goes into a bucket. They just dump it into a bucket, and they drink that at the end of the night. And that's what that's what okay. the crew. That's what the crew in Cannery Row, that's their alcohol source, is just the dregs from everyone's drinks. But they're also uh, avid, avid abalone poachers. Uh, Monkey-faced eel, I've fished for those before. That's not a, that's not a popular commercial fish. Nope, uh, but they just, I think they just um, allowed a commercial fishery on it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, I think I, uh, I, I don't think eel in, in general is very popular, right, for a lot of people, um, unless it's like you know unagi. Mm-hmm. Right? But uh, it's delicious. I mean, it's very similar, right? If you if you were to cook it exactly the same way as unagi, you'd come out, you'd wind up with a very similar yeah. texture. So it's less fatty, but other than that, it's very similar. Yeah, you know, with unagi, um, more and more they're turning to American eels because of how depleted eels yeah. are. The, the eels that the, that the Japanese are traditionally using are so depleted right. that they're turning now to American eels. And there's a lot of controversy right now because guys, what guys are doing is harvesting glass eels, which is a... Like a little baby ones? A baby eel. Yeah. Because, you know, like anadromous fish, right? Anadromous fish live in the ocean and run up a river mm-hmm. to spawn. A catagenous fish lives in a river and goes out to the ocean to spawn. And eels are catagenous. So they're in, the, in, in American rivers, and they go out, and they just keep going out into the Atlantic, and they keep just going to deeper and deeper and deeper water, and that eventually leads into a place called the Sargasso Sea, and they spawn in the Sargasso Sea, and then the larvae just free float on the currents, and eventually the larvae develops into what's called a glass eel, which is just a little teeny thing that looks like a, looks like a translucent piece of a noodle or just like a little almost like a little piece of seaweed that you can see through and they start migrating up rivers and now there's a big market for guys that go out and harvest glass eels you know which are worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per pound to sell glass eels into aquaculture facilities because you obviously can't breed them in captivity when you you can you can raise them in captivity but they can't be bred in captivity so we're in a situation now where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is more aggressively trying to get a, get a grip, like as this demand for glass eels is growing, to try to get a grip on where these things are coming from, where they're going, and if we're going to wind up doing to our own eels what they did to their eels and completely deplete them out. So have you had a full-grown a full glass eel? Oh, yeah. <coughs> yeah, we smoke them. Yeah. I used to, like... I lived for a while. I had an old girlfriend that was doing a writing fellowship in Rhode Island. And we rented a house. She rented a house that sat on the tide line in Rhode Island. And I would trim deer steaks at night or whatever. And I would just take like whatever I trimmed off, silver skin and stuff, and I would put it on a hook. And I could cast it off my deck out into a little bay. And I would open the bale on my rod and lay it in front of the couch when we're watching movies at night. And I would take a little piece of masking tape that was white and just pinch that masking tape on the line at my rod tip. And we'd be watching the movie and pretty soon you'd see that masking tape moving across the living room rug. Then I could just grab my rod, open a sliding door and I'd pull eels up over the deck rail and you'd get some freaking giants, man. And I would just gut them that is a brilliant way to, Dude, it's a great way to fish. just lazy fishing. I would, I, would, I would just leave the head on, gut them, and brine them, and smoke them. And what I, the way I would produce them is there's a, guy, uh, there's a guy named Ray Turner on the Delaware River who runs an eel weir. And when you're doing eel weirs, they just build rock wall, rock wall funnels for commercial harvest. And they're, har- instead of, like, they're harvesting the run, right, the eel run, but the eel run is going downriver everyone thinks of like a fish run going upriver but they harvest them when the eels are migrating to spawn headed downriver 
And so I was writing about him in my first book, and he kind of turned me on to how he likes to cook his eels. And he runs a place called Delaware Delicacies and sells, eel, and sells American eels. So what do they do, smoke them? Or? He smokes them. smokes them, yeah. Yeah, he runs yeah. a smokehouse. Yeah. So he, smells a variety, he sells a variety of smoke products, but his, his, his like main offering that he sells into restaurants and things is that his main offering is a smoked eel. Yeah. yeah. Well, these guys, these guys are, you know what, they're, they're basically in, in rock holes. Yeah. Right? Monkey face. Yeah. yeah. That's how my Uncle Don taught me how to catch them is just dipping bait down into cracks in the rocks. Yeah. Yeah, they have out here, they have this little like upside down pole. It's like a stick basically with a little leader on it, I guess, a little, little hook and, and bait. Yeah. And you just, it's almost like jigging for them. Yeah, right? you, only have, you only have like six inches of wire off the end of your rod because you want to be able to cram... You want to be able to cram the stick back into things. Then you're pretty, you'll feel, and they're big, you know, you'll feel them in there bucking around and then you drag them out. But it's like a six inch leader and a bait on the end of a, you know, like a, you know, eight foot long car antenna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting way to fish. So man. there's no line. Well, there's a leader. Yeah. You got a poking pole. Yeah. The technical term would be a poking pole with a leader, like a wire on the end with a hook. And you're just trying to deliver that bait by cramming it into cavities, under rocks, any kind of cave thing. And you'll hook them sometimes. What you got to be careful about is you got to think ahead. Like, are you going to be able to drag a big-ass deal out of there? Because he might have come in some other route. Like, let's say he's got something you don't even know about where he's coming in some hole and then he winds up in a spot, and you cram through some little crack to get him, and then you get him where he's on, but you can't get him out how you came in. So you got to make sure you're always fishing a crack that's going to be big enough to pull like an average monkey-faced eel back out of the hole. And it's a dangerous fishing because you're out in shit that's just getting battered by waves. So it's fun, man, but it's like a high-risk like high angling. So, all right, we talked about sea cucumbers already. Which is kind of my, I'm like way into sea cucumbers right now. But we got to touch on that again. We, the Monkey face eels? No, the sea cucumbers. Yeah. The, the, well, talk, we didn't talk about the eel skin yet. The chicha. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. No, that, and that's another crazy thing. Yeah. So, well, so, so for these eels, it's just, they're basically grilled. Like the flesh is grilled, but um, there's a sauce that's brushed on with made with all of the, uh, like all the grilled bits, the, the, the bones, the trim, all that stuff from the eel. And it's, it's, put into this sauce and allowed to basically create a glaze, more or less. And then it's brushed on the eel flesh and then it's grilled, right? But the skin, you know, like they, in Japan, they do uh, uh, what's called uh, fugu, the uh, blowfish. Yeah, right? yeah. So they, That's they, the one that has the toxic part, right? Yeah, so if you don't cut it the right way, it'll kill you. Yeah. Right? Um, but, uh, but anyway, they, they take the skin and they, they make like a cold skin kind of like salad or something, or you eat it with the flesh. And so it's basically boiled skin, like cleaned and then boiled skin and then chilled. And then it's just How like a How long do you have to boil almost. the skin for? Uh, five minutes. It just depends. Uh, it, you know, in, in monkey face deal, it's pretty quick. So you scrape all the slime off. Mm-hmm. Clean it, purge it, rub it in a little salt, rinse it in some water, uh, and get all the meat off. And then you can basically just boil it in a pot if you want. For us, we, we put it inside a cryovac bag, and it's basically you know, compressed in a cryovac bag so it's flat oh, and it never you. curls up. And then we just steam it when it's in the cryovac bag until it's tender. You can just push through it. You can just put your fingers through the skin. Then once that's tender, you take it out, throw it in an ice bath, and it's, it's ready to go. Ready Hold to on, you can steam it in the cryovac. It's not in the water. It's in the water because it's in a cryovac. 
Well, we just place the skin directly in the bag. You don't have to, you know, and just and just seal it, compress it, and seal but it. But then put it in your steam in your it. like sous vide water. Yeah, you could do that, or you could just steam it. Just holding it over. A just put it in a, pot throw it inside a steamer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then so you can either put it in the water or you just steam it, right? Um, and uh, and then once it's tender, just chill it and, and then it you might slice be, it. And it might like be tender. And how long? Uh, just a couple minutes. Every fish is different, but in, in this particular case, it's like three minutes. And then you like slice it so it looks like julienne carrots, mm-hmm. except with a texture of um, like cold noodles. Yeah, yeah. And then you put a sauce on that or toss it in something. Yeah, there's like a little vinegar made from the monkey face steel bones and some herbs, and then you serve it with the flesh. Yeah, that was yeah. a very surprising dish. The the skin. Yeah, yeah. because that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that impressed me most about what you're doing is. You put more attention into the, more love and care into the shit that everybody throws away. That's good stuff, man. That's the sweet meat. That's, that's the good stuff. Like a lot of this stuff is like the, you know, the chitlins or the skin or, you know, and the, there's so many alternative textures or, you know, other textures or flavors that we don't use. We, in my opinion, we have a very wasteful, you know, kind of culture in the way that we, or at least right now, because, you know, our food practices are so like, oh, let's just take the, you know, let's just take the tenderloin and throw the rest away or let's just, you know, because we don't know what to do with it. So yeah. really a lot of it is just, you know, you know, uh, just got to reassess some of these things. Yeah, that's the thing that I think that, needs to happen in, in in game management is a lot of states are aggressive about uh salvage requirements okay um about curbing want and waste and i think that it's not even like a it's not even like a lefty righty thing right where you have like some like ver- politically very conservative states alaska montana that are really strict about salvage requirements so if you think about that, you're the, like like the goal of, you know, a goal of conservatism would be that you're alleviating people from regulation, right? You not tell you're like the goal is to not tell people what to do, not mandate to them how to behave or what to do. But here you have like really conservative states who are also saying, no, dude, you are going to retain the usable portions of your animals to the point where my brother hunts a moose unit in Alaska, where they mandate that you retain the liver. That's the only case I can think of where a state has come out and said, you're not going to waste that moose's liver in that, that. In that particular true. unit. But some states are still like really lax about it. I remember being down, I remember going down in South Carolina with a friend of mine, down to his local butcher, and the, when they gut a deer, part of their deer gutting process is to sawzall away the ribs, and saws all the way the shanks, and that all goes into a dumpster. Because even there, a commercial processor, they have the, the salvage requirements aren't in place, and then the commercial processor's not even, even attempting to deal with it. Ribs and shanks, I, my own two eyes, every shank and every rib off those deer was into a dumpster. That's crazy to me. You know, think, about, think about it from just like a, like a you know, sustainability perspective. Like, you, you got... It, if you're if you're a hunter and you're out there and you're throwing away half of these things that could be turned into I mean you think about it you, you could make soup for a week, two weeks, three weeks. You can braise the, you know, shanks and make stew for your whole family for, you know, another week. Uh, you know, you, you, th- there's just there's so much that's uh um 
I don't know how it got like this. It's crazy, though. No, I, there's I, so, I don't There's either. so much on there. We live, that's, in, that's, we live in just uh, abundance, man. Yeah. We live in abundance. Yeah, I'd say in most states, you don't have to keep the neck. No. No. I don't know about most. No, I would say, yeah, probably most states, you don't need to keep the neck. But it's like, it's more, like over, the course of, uh, over the course of my hunting life, I always learn more and more stuff. Like, I remember we used to always bone out our shanks and just grind them for burger. And I was like, oh, shit, you can make all kinds of good stuff with shanks. And then and I remember the first time I ever tried to mess, it was my third year of college, we started trying to mess with cooking deer tongues. And we couldn't really figure it out. But eventually got it figured out. And I'm like, oh, no shit, you can cook tongue. And then on down the line, right? And then you think you get to a point where you're like, man, I'm getting to a point where I'm really utilizing a lot of stuff. But then last night I eat with you, and I'm like, yeah, I haven't even scratched the surface. I'm still, I, like, recently we discovered collars on fish. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the meat surrounding, the meat surrounding the, um, behind the gill cover, like the throat of the fish. Okay. Uh, recently discovered that. I was like, no shit. Like, I can't believe that's, how many pounds of this stuff of we have. Thing, yeah, yeah, how many pounds of this stuff we've thrown away. You know, another thing, like, uh, like on the waist thing, man is black bears you re- like you did you recently were hunting bears this spring in, in mm. bc yeah is i went to right? bc yeah. yeah yeah um i've never like i've never eaten organs on bears even though obviously they'd be fine i can't think of ever eating a bear heart because i feel like uh you know man i mean could, for lack of a better word i feel like there's like a lot of weird uh almost like a spirit uh, like for lack of a better word, like a spirituality thing, man, or like a bear heart, like it's just like I, 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 never, I can't look at it as an appetizing thing for some reason. But you were saying there's a tradition in Scotland that you cut an X. Yeah, there's an old yeah yeah on the tip I, of the heart. I, I feel you on that. I, I understand what you mean by that. And, and, you, and I'm obviously me, not the first person to think it because of what you told me last when yeah, we were talking about yeah. hearts. No, I mean it took me a while to get to the point to be able to even want to hunt a bear. Yeah. In fact, some of it came from just wa- well, actually watching your show, too. But, uh, yeah, there's an old tradition where you basically make an X in the bottom of the heart, and they, they say it's supposed to release the soul, right? Yeah. So it's, it basically allows you to, uh, you know, <laughs> consume this thing uh, freely. Yeah, and then, so I never ate bare heart. I never ate bare tongue for another illogical reason, because when I used to send bears in to get them tested for trichinosis, um, they'd want the tongue, because apparently it's a great... There's a lot of uh, larva getting the tongue, and that stuck in my head. Um, you know, sorry to I got, <laughs> that just brings up a question for me. Is Steve and I are both carriers of trichinellus paralysis? Yeah, yeah, proud. Did you have a sore tongue when you had sore back muscles no. and legs? My tongue never got sore. You got a sore tongue? No. So you're saying that it never goes away completely? It only well, they only know from animals that they've. They, it's hard for them to really map uh, when it goes away because you have to, you'd have to have an infected animal. No, you, I mean, I mean, in your, you know, as, yeah, a, as a consumer of at uh, least ten years. infected bears. Yeah, you, you stay infected at least ten years. Oh wow! You you can't get sick again. So do you have to take medicine? No, all because the time, you, you can't. Done, you can't unless you ate your own arm. You can't get sick again. Uh-huh. You're a carrier, and when something scavenges your carcass, mm-hmm. they'll get sick. But you can't get sick from your own infected meat. Right. 
It's out of your digestive tract, and the larvae live in calcified cysts in your muscle. So the bear that we got sick from had, I think it was 868 larvae per gram. So if you ate a pound of that bear, you ate a half million larvae. That's a lot of larvae. And they die at 165 degrees. Now, so what do you, what do you, like, how do you get rid of it? What do you, you got to take pills? You just tough it out. What's, uh, you just, oh, really? Unless you catch it right away. Like, if you ate, I gather if, if you ate infected meat, like, let's say you ate some raw meat that you found in your buddy's fridge. And then your buddy's like, that day or the next day, your buddy's like, dude, that was bear meat. You're fucked. If you tend took the deworming pills, you'll head some of it off. But once they get along in their life cycle enough, and you start getting like the muscle aches, and so it's just which you, is a you month miss your chance. Later. A month later, yeah, you miss your chance because you don't get sick for a, for a month. In a month, you get muscle pain, and what that muscle pain is, I mean, you might have some gastrointestinal upset that you would just pass off as any number of things. The muscle ache is so peculiar and intense that then you're like something ain't right. But by then, the pill's not going to do any good. But even then, that's n- nine in ten cases in, the, in our country are uh, misdiagnosed for a fever. That's a, yeah, because you know when you get the flu and you get muscle aches, it took me, the only reason I would have never put it together if three of the guys I work with weren't all complaining about the same thing and we hadn't been together for a month. I wonder if I have trichinosis. You might. You You'll be all right. From the past, yeah. Yeah, have you, gone, have you had a similar bout? So, a lot of the stuff sounds very familiar. Yeah, you'd be like, dude, yeah, you might be like, dude, i just like been feeling like shit. I got wicked muscle pains. I got some kind of something. Yeah, right? I mean, and I felt like I had days, run a marathon. Ten days later. Yeah, I kept thinking I had a weightlifting injury across my entire body. <laughs> so, and then you'll hang out. Uh, and then like 10, 11, 12, 14 days later, you're just back to normal and you got through it, but you're infected. Now to say like how long you're infected for it, you'd have to know this is, let me give it, let me give an example. When I was at the Mountain House factory, Mountain House freeze dried food, I was like, hey, what's the shelf stability of Mountain House freeze dried food? And they're like, well, we don't really know. I mean, we know what we'll say, like a defendable position, but a peculiarity of it is that we have some from a long time ago that we've kept in a controlled space and it's still good. But we can only tell, like, that we don't know the far end of it. We only know, like, what the oldest sample we have is. And to really map out, like, how long you stay infected, you'd have to have an animal that you knew got infected and when it got infected and then watch it for 20 years and then butcher its meat and see if the cysts were still good. And since no one's really done that, they can't say for certain how long something can stay infected for. It would be interesting. Like, I should donate. I might donate my body to science when I die. because but I thought they could just take a chunk of flesh and do a biopsy. Yeah, but I don't want to go through that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, could, I, could, I should wait a decade. I should wait a decade from infection, which would be, I don't know, what year was it? It was 2012. Okay, so in 2022... I'm going to go down to the CDC and I'm going to offer a biopsy of my arm. Then they will be able to test if the cysts are still good. I'm throwing this out there right now to the CDC. They'll be able to test if those cysts are still alive. They'll know that you stay infected for 10 years. And I will every 10 years commit to testing 
to find out how long you stay, how long the cysts are good for. But they're good. I know it's like at least 10 years. But the only thing that can liberate that, the only thing that can liberate the larva from its calcified cyst is stomach acid. So you're curious. You eat you're bear? even making notes. Can you, can you, can you uh, eat bear freely now? Can you eat an infected animal and not be re- uh, sick Funny again? you bring that up. I'll let Giannis field that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what got me back onto the USDA website. I think I was researching something else, but uh, they, I, 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 I saw a, uh, something about uh, trichinosis, and I was like, oh, I'll, re- I'll read up a little bit. And uh, it said that they, that they think, they believe through some research that had been done, that, uh, you, that animals do develop an immunity um, after they've been infected. Yeah. But it's not uh, not 100%. And also, not all bears have trichinosis. You don't, you, 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 it's something that each individual needs to acquire through the consumption of infected meat. So, uh, yeah, you could kill a young bear, and depending on what he's been up to, he might not have ever encountered infected meat. But there is some evidence that over time, as a bear gets older and older and older, it's the likelihood of it having encountered infected meat. And probably particularly when they get big enough that they're regularly eating other bears, right? The chances of that bear becoming infected go up. But yeah, not all, like by no means are all bears infected with trichinosis. Yeah. But what I've, I've had them tested and had them test negative and I had them tested and had them test positive. Hey, you know, in Japan, they eat a lot of bear that is undercooked or raw. Or I mean, not raw, but undercooked. They might have a lot of trichinosis. I was talking to someone from the, uh, uh, someone from, I can't remember, I think they were from Doctors Without Borders. And they were saying when they're working in areas of like equatorial Africa, where there's a lot of bush meat consumption, um, they roll in and just as a gent, like when they come in and do vaccinations and stuff in villages, they roll in and just do deworming under the assumption. They're saying that our, our operating assumption is that everyone's a trichnosis. Everyone's suffering trichnosis. So bush meat, you know, like not, not already dead, but, but hunted bush animals, right? Yeah. So, yeah in, yeah, in Africa, it's just like they, like what we call wild, you know, we call wild game. But generally, like, like bush meat would be that um, people hunting wild game and selling wild game, you, you say the bush meat trade. You know, where, where people are actively out hunting in the jungle um, for sale. Yeah, it's just a term, bushmeat. It's like, yeah, their, their version of wild game. Um, so, yeah, they're operating under the, th- they, they operate under the assumption that people are eating carnivorous animals or omnivorous animals and just getting infected and getting reinfected and infected and reinfected. And they go in and treat people with deworming pills. When I, I bought a deworming pill for trichinosis, it was $2,400. My insurance paid half of it. Uh, I bought it, and the, the pharmacist said, I'm not going to tell you what to do with this information, but I can tell you that that pill is 7 bucks when you give it to a dog. But she said, I don't know about the dosages. I'm just, like, throwing it out there. <laughs> and I took it, and I didn't get better any quicker than anybody else. Yanni yeah. didn't took it. He wasn't going to spend his money on something. So you guys got better at the same time, yeah. and you didn't take I it. I was way yeah. too late. We, were, we had already been sick for five weeks. 
<laughs> yeah, one of the biggest reasons I didn't take it is because when I spoke, we were interviewed. Um, everybody was just about interviewed by like their local uh, state and county health department. We all got calls from the Alaska state epidemiologist because it just doesn't happen a lot. So and the kinda, CDC because the re- it's like mandatory reportable disease. Yeah, they have to do a they have to do a case on it. And the Alaska guy it. was like, "Look, man, that steroid that you'll take to you know that uh, that you take as a, as a pill is so strong and severe." That, in my opinion, you might be doing more uh, damage to your body by taking that pill than what is going on. Can't you just, like, chug a bottle of whiskey every night? Sure. <laughs> Purge that out. And, and, and this comes up a lot because it's just fun to talk about, right? And, like, no one got hurt in any kind of long-term way, so it's just fun and funny to talk about. And I talk about it often and with great relish. But uh, um, what point was I going to make about it? Well, we got we got here by talk. We were talking about tongues because we ate bear tongue. Oh yeah, so that's always like stuck. You know when you get like little things stuck in your head, right? Like I remember getting real sick off Canadian Hunter whiskey and then not being able to drink uh, Canadian Hunter mm-hmm. because just like the association. So I got stuck in my head about bear tongue. So you got the image of like little maggots. Yeah, and, and so it turned me off. But you uh, from your bear, you got the spring. You know, you're very generous because you only get one tongue out of a bear. And you shared with me some bear tongue, the base of the tongue you pointed out, which you like. The fatty part. In the yeah. Bag, yeah. And that's like cooking tongue. But you also did something that I'd always heard about with um, illegal wildlife trafficking in Asia, which is bear paw. Talk about how you handled bear paw, which I am guilty of having never, that was in my discard pile. Skin the paws to save the hide, but never using my paws because they were like, I just didn't think about it. I had yeah. no idea. Well, if you really think through like the anatomy of a paw, right? You've got, when you start at the top, you've got, you know, the skin and then the pad. And then all of that connective tissue and tendons and deliciousness underneath that. Then the meat around the knuckles, the cartilage and all that stuff. So there's a lot of layers of flavor in there, right? And, uh, for those who like maybe chicken feet or, you know, something along those lines. But, uh, but basically, we, we, just, uh, we just blanch off the, that outer skin and the hair, and then you can braise it just like you would any braise, like a shank, right? You throw it in some fat, some aromatics, or you just throw it in a little broth and just braise it, and then we grill it afterwards. So, but it's got all those layers. It's got all those layers of flavor. It's used so much. It has, you know, a ton of flavor already. I, it's one of my favorite things. I'm just trying to think of something to equate it to, but I can't think of something to equate it to because it was, uh, yeah. I, what, what's a parallel? I, I mean, on the, I mean, you've got that, you've got that collagen on the outside, right? It's like a like chicken feet almost, yes. right? That's yeah. what I'm trying to describe is that collagen that you could, um, it'd be hard to cut it with a fork, chews up nice. And it's like the it's like the texture and consistency of uh, raw abalone. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like a little crunch like? to it. Yeah, it's got a little crunch. A to crunch it. to it. And you can keep cooking, and it'll get really soft. Like if you wanted to, but we've decided to leave it a little toothsome, right? So you get a little texture in there. I'm telling you what, man. If you took a bear paw like that and laid it out in front of most people, and said, "I'll give you ten guesses what the hell that is," no one is gonna guess. Yeah, you know, the backside is. looks like, like human. It's not hand, like right? the freaking claw on there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The writer Jim Harrison. Um, who was an avid hunter and fisherman, he uh, always said that he can't, he saw a skinned out bear 
and could never eat bear because it was like he was looking at a skinned out human. I mean, it's shockingly similar, right? Like it's, it's definitely, I, I knew that going into it. This is the first bear I ever got. Yeah, it's better not to hang. If you have that problem, if that problem would trip you up, don't hang it. Skin it on I've the ground. I've never met a, a person that's been involved with a bear that didn't say that about the I don't first get it. I, like, I, it's not that I don't get it. It's just I don't look at it and be like, oh, my God, it's a dude. Oh, no, it's just a bear. Like, I've never had – I don't like – Yeah, 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 I hear you. Because the <laughs> back but legs – similarity is shot. Well, just don't, don't hang it by the neck and leave the fingers on it. That's, that's what, he, that's what he saw. Yeah. I gather. He saw one hang, and it was like not going near that. Yeah. Um. All right, last thing I want to talk about, uh, last question. <laughs> you, you have hung in your life, you have hung game meat for a year, right? Yeah, over a year. Talk about that shit. We get a million questions about, we get a million questions about what's up with age and deer meat. And let me, let me tee this off a little bit with kind of like what the questions come, what my personal experience is with it, and kind of just generally how I feel about it. And then I want you to go. But we get a lot of questions like, can you age deer meat? And I'm always like, yeah, man. If you have the proper facility, right, the proper kind of space, you can age deer meat. I found it's just like a dude with a house and a kitchen in it and that I hunt a lot of like pretty remote areas. It often just doesn't come up for me. Right, like um, you're dealing in like imperfect situations where the 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 way to ensure that animal's gonna be like ready for many future meals is to get the thing cut up and put in your freezer where it's stable because you gotta have a climate controlled environment. Another thing I'll say to people is what I often do for aging on on like a daily basis is I'll thaw blocks of meat out, I'll thaw roasts out, and before cooking them. I'll let them be on a rack in my fridge for a week, 10 days, two weeks sometimes. And it dries a little bit on the outside, but I'll clean it up and cook that. And I feel that that meat is different than when I thawed out. Like there's some transformation going on there. It's tenderizing. Um, I used to take ducks and just gut them and put them in paper grocery bags and put them in my fridge for 10 days. And they were better than ducks that you didn't do that with. But my general feeling about it is it's like you got to have the right space. I've never had the right space. Now, you run with it because you've rigged up spaces to do this. Like, how in the world are you able to do that? And I'd also like, would like to hear, um, like, if you think there is something that the guy at home without the special space rigged up, you know, yeah. include that. Well, I mean, just to I, think about prosciutto right okay all right I mean, it's you know those old methods of prosciutto or you know you rub the socket um and then uh I mean, you, 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 put, you rub the ball joint the ball the ball yeah yeah sorry the ball joint around the you know like the femur i guess it is yep. um and then uh you throw it on the counter by your fireplace and you just let it sit there for a couple of days and then you massage it every day right if you're not it's not like you're burying the thing in salt at all right and these things get left out at room temperature. So, so it's not really that. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just a different viewpoint for us, especially in America, right? But you, you've got to have, I guess, I guess, you know, at home, you've got to have just the, the right air circulation. And you've got to have the right uh, humidity level. But more importantly, just air circulation. So all you're doing is kind of mitigating the 
um, you know, surface moisture and, and the air circulation. So if you dry it off and you, you put it near a fan. You mean like physically dry it off with towels? Yeah, so before it goes in there, you know, it's got to be in a good state. Like if you dropped your leg in the dirt or something like that and, yep. you, you know, you, you, you had to rinse it off a lot and, and um, you know, it's contaminated, I, w- I wouldn't recommend it, right? Yep. So, um, but, you know, if you have a good, you have a good, simple, you know, deer leg, Throw it in the fridge. Throw it in the fridge. Skin it out. Dry it off. Hang it in the fridge. You got to have circulation all the way around. Um, and, and the reality is, is that the, the, the microbes in the air do the rest of the work. For f- as long as you manage the process from the original uh, surface moisture and continue to dry it off every day and have a lot of air circulation around, it's really super easy to do. There's zero things wrong with, with a deer that's been in the fridge for two, two weeks. Um, you can eat it you know, rare, and it's yeah. perfectly fine, as long as you don't mess it up in between, right? And you don't, like, is it, for, for safety's sake, if you're going to try aging something in your fridge, you're saying you don't necessarily, like, not necessarily, you don't need to rub that thing down with salt, or you hear people about rubbing it down with black pepper, which has some antimicrobial quality. You don't have to, no. You don't have to, but, but you know, there's a lot of, like, ifs, right? Like, like if, if inside, you know, there's some sort of bullet damage or shrapnel or something from that bullet spread apart and maybe hit, like, a little membrane. And then you know how in some animals you'll have, like, um, all that moisture in the fascia in yep. between, yes. like, muscle layers. So that's also an issue because that stuff starts to seep out as you age. Gotcha. So as long as it's in good condition, then you're, you're good. So talk about what it looks like after you've had it hang, if you've hung something for a year. It has a lot of mold on it. That's like salami. It's got that white uh, pisha on the outside. Um, so that how that, do you know a safe mold from a shitty mold? Uh, usually, shitty mold is that safe mold is that really fine textured, smooth salami-looking mold that's white uh, and and kind of silky. Right. A bad mold is green, black, big hairs, big spores of hair that are growing off the moisture, the, the wet areas. Definitely don't want to eat that. I don't, I don't know what it is, but you definitely don't want to eat that. And what do you, when you age, let's just, let's just focus on venison for a minute or, or, or antler, antlered and horned game. What are you after by age? Like, what, is, what are you trying to achieve by aging it? Well, the whole, the whole point of it is that you basically, you know, everything has a sweet spot like we were talking about earlier. You know, and so. Like a fish being dead for two minutes or. Two minutes or. Or, or an elk being days. dead for one year. Exactly. And so. And so there's, there's, like I was saying, there's, there's typically two sweet spots. There's right when you get it, and there's further on down the road. So you got to decide for every product which, you know, further down the road, which, which uh, point is best for each product. Yeah. So, um, you know, as the animal sits and ages, basically the enzymes start to break down this animal, right? Um, and it, they, you know, the flavor becomes uh, deeper, right? Not gamier or what we typically think of as as uh, you know, kind of a nasty flavor, but it just deepens. It also becomes more tender. And so, you know, at that point, you can, you can cut off a, you know, if you let something age for really, like that Aldad leg, right? I can yeah. cut off a steak of that Aldad leg, grill it, serve it rare, and you can bite right through it. Yeah. We had one time just perfect conditions where we had a calf elk that uh, was hanging in a garage. And at night, it'd be down in the, upper 20s you know in the daytime it'd be up into the 40s but we ate the whole thing without ever freezing any of it and i remember toward the end you could put you could put a finger into it 
Mm-hmm. You could jab your finger into it. That's once what it's you, really delicious. Once you yeah. cut the rind away. And my old man used to tell stories of hanging deer until they had an inch of mold on them. Mm-hmm. And cutting the mold away and then cutting that rind away and having just like perfect deer meat under there. Yeah. But if a dude's doing it, okay, explain this then. What are you not wanting to not happen? Like what are the things when you look and be like, uh-oh, I need to figure something out because this is going south. It's it's all about moisture control, moisture control, air circulation. As long it just look if you look at it and it's a it's like a soppy mess. I wouldn't eat it. I wouldn't recommend it. What about but what about got, odor? So, there should never be a foul odor. No, there's never a foul odor, right? So you, you should you should never have any kind of like nothing should be. Uh, you know, after the first few days, it's going to dry and it's going to drip. Any blood will drain off. Any moisture will basically drip off. Right. And you're and you're diligent about. And you just wipe it down every day. You keep a fan on it, basically. The easiest way to do it is just to keep a fan directly on the meat. Or you know, if you have a fridge, just put a little fan inside there, which isn't always the easiest thing to do, but you just cut a little hole and stick it inside. Um, but uh, that's it. That's really it. As, lo- as long as it doesn't smell bad and it doesn't look like it's completely coated in moisture or there's no like excess moisture inside the joints around the bones, you're fine. And another thing you, you talked about was you were dealing with lamb for your restaurant and you had taken kidney fat mm-hmm. and kind of covered the that that ball joint area and the packed it with kidney fat so that it dried on there and formed like a barrier right what are you doing when you do that well so in, in that instance we're basically preventing too much drying out too much meat loss right okay so you know the this the the outside of the meat ages really well but where the meat's cut ages not as well so is that know, just because you've introduced because in the butchering process you've probably introduced some bacteria onto that you probably introduced some bacteria onto that cut most i don't i have no idea but most why, likely why it right? works yeah, i mean it fe- like definitely feels different like when you skin an animal it's got that the fell or the fascia on the outside and where you've cut it's just different yeah yeah and i'm not sure of of why but i but um at least scientifically, but, but uh, you know, it just doesn't age the same, right? So you got you to gotta protect it in some way or the other. And the easiest thing to do is just to rub a little salt, you know, on there. You rub a little bit of salt on, on there cut and then let it hang. Then you're, you're almost guaranteed that you're going to be good as long as you dry it down. So if a guy was going to rig up, let's say, let's say you were like, you're like the refrigerator, I don't have room in my fridge, um, whatever, right? You don't, you, know, you don't have room to hang a whole damn deer's leg in your fridge. If you were going to rig up a... a a space or a room to, to do some long-term aging lay out kind of the parameters of what you're after well i, I would get a fridge and throw it in uh, or you, you know what you could do you go to i mean let's just say that uh, you know resources aren't an issue then you know you go get uh, a commercial uh, like a like a like one of these things is reach-ins it's like a like a stainless steel reach-in refrigerator it's got yeah. a lot of room around or just like a little room in the inside so you can get good air circulation around that meat then um you know i would put a fan in there Th- those typically already have a fan they got a right? fan yeah yeah no but i'm fine doing the yeah you don't need to box. get it you don't need to get into like diy like crazy shit that's going to cost five bucks like perfect world yeah so yeah you get you got a refrigerated box with really high air circulation and you throw a hook in there and you put your meat inside and just that's it and at a point, you get to where you're not doing any maintenance on it. Right. So after, you know, that typically like after the first 
week or so, depending on the size. Like if you've got a whole elk leg in there, rear elk leg, um, then that's going to take a little longer to dry out, right? Yeah. You got to watch it carefully for yeah, long. You got to tend to it. You got to make sure nothing's, you know, it's not touching the side of the refrigerator so the moisture doesn't accumulate or yep. not touching other meat or, or uh, you know, it's got free air circulation all the way around. But that's really the only thing you need to worry about. And then the temperature, you don't want to get, you want to keep around probably the perfect, not, not much warmer than 45 degrees or so. Or Yeah, I mean, I, I would keep it at 36. Oh, is that right? Yeah, no. keep it at 36. And then you're, 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 you know, all those things just help to kind of mitigate any yep. issues that you'll have. And, and you'll wind up with a delicious, you know, aged piece of meat. You know, the other thing that it does, too, is it also, it also uh, you know, like uh, I think a lot of people talk about gaminess. Yep. But mm, really, is, that's the beauty of it. has no definition. Yeah, it, it, but that's the, yeah, no, it doesn't. It's all subjective. But that's the beauty of wild meat to me is that gaminess, right? Or, or rather the taste of wild meat. But, you know, aging it for a long period of time actually decreases that aroma of gaminess. Is that and right? it makes it more savory, right? It's like, a, it's like a palatable savoriness that you get once it's, once it's aged all the way. Yeah. yeah. And when you're doing that, the end would be, the end would be that the dryness on the outside marches in from each side and you'd eventually wind up like in this perfect situation, this perfect aging situation, like when you went too far would be that the part that you needed to trim away to get to the good stuff, uh, that part grew and ate away what you were trying to save, what you were trying to hang on to in the middle. Mm -hmm. You just have like a piece that was like a solid rind. Yeah, I mean, you got, you, you'll, you'll trim off roughly maybe half an inch all the way around of, yeah. of basically skin rind around the... But that, mar but that slowly goes inward, right? I mean, over time, or does that, does that does. not do that? Yeah. It does over time. Yeah. yeah, over time. And then, you know, so that, that, uh, that Barbary sheet, that Aldad that I have up there, you know, you can, you know, you'll have an inch that's wasted around, you know, rind all the way around that's wasted. Yeah. But on the inside, it's still, you know, it's over a year, so it's dried all the way. But you can cut off a slab of that like prosciutto and eat it like that. No shit. Yeah. Man, that's like, I got to start getting more into that shit. Like I've done some, I've done some of that stuff only like because conditions were right. Yeah. Well, I'll send, I'll send you, you know what we can do is we can, I can send you a spec later on. Like the perfect, the perfect environmental conditions for all that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put that in our show notes, man. Yeah. All right. You got, Yanni, you got any like a uh, final thing you want to ask about? Oh, I do, man, but I think we're out of time. <laughs> really? Well, yeah, we're close. Yeah. My concluder is you are short. throwing away, if you hunt and fish and handle your own stuff, you are throwing away a lot of good stuff. You don't, it's not even that you're a dick. It's just you just don't know. I mean, you could be a dick, too, but it's like you're throwing away good stuff because you just don't know how good it is. Yeah. Someone's got to show you. You got to talk to people who know more than you know. There's, there's, there's not enough information about it. Really, I think that, you know, we've got to look at our practices and reassess. Yeah. But, you know, you need, you know, it's not like, uh, it's not that easy to use, you know, eel skin if you've never seen it done before, right? So we've got to have the information. Because it wouldn't even occur there. to you. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know that you're, uh, you don't know that you're not being smart until someone demonstrates it to you. All right. Uh, you got any final things you want to add? That was it. That was the one. Dude, it's like we should do this like every little once in a while and just keep talking <laughs> about it because, I, yeah, I got it. Well, yeah. it's never ending, really, right? It's never ending. If you really start to look at every animal, right, there's so many, you know, everyone's a little different. And we haven't even gotten into how to uh, slow grill a pineapple with clarified butter. Yeah. Well, no, it's our butter. It's not even clarified butter. It's what? Butter and rum. Our butter and rum. Butter and rum? Yeah. All right. Next time. Next time, it's all about pineapples. All right. Uh, 
Thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you guys coming. All right, man. Don't forget the Meat Eater Live event, Ellen Theater, Bozeman, Montana, August 15th, 6 p.m. Still got a couple tickets. Get them now. Hey, guys. Turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms I like them because it gives you hand-free calling meaning when you're working a bird up close you can have your gun on your knee finger on the trigger ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.